Dum. My boy woke me up at like every hour. I'm of hoping course. I don't have mommy brain. Boom, and we're live. The newly mommy, Dr. Rhonda Patrick. First of all, congratulations on making people. <laughs> Thank you. You made your first person. Yeah, the cloning project was a success. <laughs> we were talking before the show about what a, a strange biological shift happens in your mind. And isn't it? Is it's amazing, isn't it? And not just your mind, right? Like your person. Absolutely. Yeah, it's completely amazing. I, mean, I had no idea that I would love being a mom so much. Yeah. You know, I, I, I kind of waited till later in life to to have a, a child. And, you know, that, that was for a reason, because I, I was, you know, really driven and, and loved what I was doing in science. And I felt, you know, I didn't feel that calling to like, I've got to reproduce, yeah. I've got to reproduce. And then finally I was like, well, if I don't reproduce now, I might not get a chance. So, you know, I that sort of pressure kind of nudged me a little bit, I think. Um, but, yeah, the whole, like process of getting pregnant and having this like you know person growing inside of me just the whole thing was amazing and then after having the baby and he's like a person now and, and he's four months old and developing this little personality I'm like so amazed by how in love I am with him and how like how much I would do anything for him and how almost nothing really affects me as much like stress of various things in life you know I just look at him and, you know, see him smile at me and do some little things that are like, yeah. you know, uniquely him and the wonder and awe in his eyes. And it's just like gone. Like, it's really amazing. So, yeah, it's crazy. It changes your life. It, cha it changes who you are as a human being, you know, and, and it changes it in a way that you did. You know, I have a lot of friends that are like, I don't want kids. I never want kids. I'm like, wow, I kind of didn't really want kids either. You know, when I was 30, like, I was mm -hmm. like, I don't want kids. But then. Once you have them, you you realize like oh like I was just sort of attached to this idea of living my life the way I was living it, and then I was like this is the way I like to live life, and then you have a kid you're like oh no I love this kid more than anything, like so now my whole idea of what life is, yeah shifts into this new paradigm. It's, and the, the also the thing like reproduce always weirds me out because you're not you're making people you're not reproducing anything. You know, I mean, you're you're making people. It's a whole new person. You're not reproducing you. True. I mean, it's you weird, obviously right? it is. It is in a way. I mean, there's. It's definitely reproduction. It's the right way. Yeah. To say I it. mean, you're passing on a lot of the same you yeah. know variations in genes that you have, and you know, you're obviously you know they there's similarities in the way they look sure. to, to to both you and, and and your spouse, but yeah, it is a completely new person with a new personality yeah. and. But of course, all that is shaped a lot by your diet and exercise and all those things that you do, even, you know, aside from your actual genetics and passing on the sequence of DNA, like just, you know, things that you do in your lifestyle actually can affect, um, you know, the child's neurocognitive development and, uh, you know, met metabolism. Now, were you cognizant of that? Or were you obviously you're very aware of that. But did you uh, what did you do to act on that? I should ask. Yeah. So, I mean, I did. I definitely became obsessed with trying to um, optimize everything I could, you know, because I'm a scientist and I can sort of sift through the literature. I think I you can you can kind of get stuck in this loop where you want to, like, optimize everything and you kind of right. have to, like, chill out a little bit. But, you know, during pregnancy, I wanted to make sure, you know, all the micronutrients I was getting, you know, because they're so important for brain development and like folate, magnesium, iron, you know, zinc. Um, and then DHA, vitamin D, all these things were super important. Um, actually, with the DHA, I, I found out that um, 
taking so DHA is the marine uh, omega three fatty acid that's predominantly found in like microalgae for uh, vegetarian sources, but in fish, um, fatty fish. Well, it turns out that the DHA uh, that's in what's called phospholipid form, which is something that's found um, in the roe of fish, so like fish eggs, mm. it's also found in krill as well. Um, and fish only have like a small percentage. So fish have DHA, like 1% of their DHA is in phospholipid form, whereas the roe of the fish, anywhere between 40 to 70% is in phospholipid form. Wow. And the thing that's really cool about this is that the phospholipid form, it's been shown when you take that orally, it stays, more of it ends up in the phospholip, a certain type of phospholipid form in the blood that has been shown to get into the developing fetal brain 10 times better than a DHA in non-phospholipid form, free fatty acid form. So is this something that should be consumed like for regular people as well or for it's like pr primarily mothers? So, yeah, for I think both. But the fact that, it, you know, gets taken up into the developing fetal brain 10 times you know better was enough, you know, ammunition for me to be like, I'm eating the salmon roe, you know. Right, right. But, but yeah, so there have also been studies on um, preclinical studies um, on on uh, taking DHA up in phospholipid form in, in, in mice. It's taken up better than non-phospholipid. And then there's been some clinical studies where they like radio label and follow it in humans. And again, it's taken up better in the brain um, by humans as well. Um, and actually, what's really interesting is I just submitted a paper for publication on Alzheimer's disease and a certain uh, variation in a gene called ApoE4, which I think you and I talked a lot yeah. about traumatic brain injury um, and susceptibility to Alzheimer's disease and basically um, a, a bunch of, you know, dementia type of problems. Um, well, ApoE4 sort of helps increase that risk. So I've, you know, turns out there's, because there's different transport mechanisms to get DHA into the brain, the phospholipid form appears to be better for ApoE4. And that's sort of my finding. Um, I'm not going to get all into the mechanism, but that's hopefully, fingers crossed, going to be accepted for peer from peer review um, within the next couple of months. That's fascinating. So were you eating salmon roe? That's what you were saying you were getting your, your, your source from? I was, yeah. I was, I was eating salmon roe. Um, I was ordering it from a company that, you know, has wild Alaskan salmon roe, and they you can buy it in bulk. Uh, the company was called uh, Vital Choice. Does know. it taste nasty? Um. It tasted Pause. nasty during my first <laughs> trimester. I was like, oh, maybe I should wait. Um, but, you know, it, the texture, people, a lot of people don't like, like Dan doesn't like the texture because right. like the salmon roe is like bigger. The fish eggs are bigger. And so it can kind of pop and like you get like little fish We used oil. to use those to fish for trout. Really? The, yeah. Yeah. Trout would eat salmon roe. So we would fish for trout using salmon eggs. Well, I mean, the salmon eggs they're are much, like quite a bit larger, right? Yeah, they're quite a bit larger. There's other ones like I think it's the flying fish that mm. are really small. In you know, the the phospholip DHA and phospholipid form varies from species. You know, different types of, of fish and things like that. But generally speaking, they're you know, it's it's a good thing to eat, and and especially during pregnancy. So how did you consume it? Um, on avocados, I put it on top of avocados with some lemon juice and like like hot sauce. Like mm, so, okay, just juiced it up. It's kind of like a paleo treat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Nice. It's like a lot of fat. So avocados have like potassium, sure. they have monounsaturated fat, and vitamin E, all the different forms. You know, so avocados have monounsaturated fat and saturated fat, right? They have a small amount of saturated fat. Probably a small amount. Yeah. yeah. They're when I say they have like typically when I talk about foods, um, I'll talk about what's 
you know, what's concentrated. So it's like really concentrated in monounsaturated fat. Mm. So whereas like if you say, you know, butter or cheese, then it's concentrated in saturated fat. Right, so, right. But typically you'll find mono, poly, and saturated fat in all different forms of fat, just very varying amounts, right? And to some degree it's like, well, is that even really significant? It's such a small amount. I don't know. Now, so, how, what, how much uh, of the salmon roe were you consuming? It really depends. Like, I started to really start to ramp up my consumption um, in, like, the third trimester when brain development was, like, really gearing so up. crazy. You're thinking about this, like, as a scientist. <laughs> so, it's so every interesting. Day. Yeah. So every day I was putting a big old tablespoonful on top of my avocado. Uh, really, third trimester was, like, I was, like, almost every day trying to consume it. Wow. But it was hard for me. The first trimester I, was tr- I started to try a little bit, and it made me a little nauseous. Like, what I if your kid can read minds? What if, like, it comes out and he's, like, super brain? You know, everyone probably is super biased <laughs> about their own children. Yeah. But I'm like, he's got great verbal skills and well, DHA's been shown. Well, super smart. You're super smart. Like, this, and you're eating all these fish eggs. <laughs> this kid's this kid's set. Well, thank you. It's going to be interesting. It, Can't you wait know, to talk to him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One day fun- he's going to be four. Sit right there. What's funny is he was, like, early on when he was, like, oh, six weeks old, he was he went through a really short stage of he was making sounds that sounded like hello. And so my mom would come over and she would in his face, she'd go, hello, hello. And he would and we have a video of it. Like I could send it to you. I'll send it to you. He would go, hello. And it like literally seems like he's saying it, but clearly he's not. I mean, he's six weeks old, you know, but he was able to like sort of mimic the sound because I think it was easier for him since he was already sort of making those sounds so of course dan and I, and dan and i were all super pumped we're like he's gonna be a genius <laughs> we're sending the video to all the family members you should really listen to what we say see oh that's hilarious of course you know he's not really saying hello but right he's you know, making noises yeah he's making noises it sound like it and it's just totally coincidental but well there's just a difference between like a kid making a noise and a kid knowing what that noise means like right. when they're actually talking yeah. Like my young, well, my seven-year-old, well, the seven-year-old, she didn't really start talking in full sentence until she was like a year and a half. But my my nine-year-old, like when she was like nine, ten months old, she was talking. It was weird. It's like she's really smart. Like she was talking like right away. Like and she stood up quicker too. She st- she was standing at like nine months old, which I found pretty shocking. Yeah. Well, yeah. like un- unassisted standing. You yeah, mean? like that's when she wow. wanted to stand. Wow. Like nine months old, she was like getting her stand on and trying to take some steps. And I was like, this is crazy. Like she's just, and she's like, that's how she is, like as a little person too. She's a little go getter. Uh huh. I often wonder, you know, the the earlier, the firstborns and the ones that are born earlier, like if they get more attention to because it's novel, you're their first time parent. And then as more children come, you know, it's like, oh, you're, yeah. It just, it, you're you're spread a little more thin, and you know, I mean, it's not necessarily the case, but it's certainly something I've often wondered. You know, if I, if we if I want to have another child, will I be able to do it? You know, it's because I really just want to. There's so much work that goes into yeah. you know, not just you know the nutrition part. And I was talking about you asked me about you know things during pregnancy, and and something I I think people don't realize is that. You know, epigenetics, which is basically the transference of um, it's it's heritable. Like you can transfer things um, that happen to you in your lifestyle without actually altering the sequence of DNA. And you can do that by changing how much a gene is activated or not activated. 
And there's been studies, lots and lots of studies in animals showing this to be the case. Of course, that's animals and how much of that actually translates to humans. But there was a really interesting study a couple of years ago, I think it was like 2015, that was published that looked at the effect of obesity. And obesity was actually looked at not in the mothers, but the fathers. Um, and so uh, sperm DNA was collected from, from males that were obese and males that were lean. And they, there's a variety of different genes, like hundreds of different genes that were looked at. And about 300 different genes were different in how they were activated or not activated in the sperm DNA of the obese men. And a lot of those genes had to do with cognition, learning memory, and metabolism. So um, that's very interesting. But what was super interesting was that these men, they were morbidly obese, they were very obese. They underwent uh, bariatric surgery and their sperm DNA was then collected, uh, you know, a couple of months after and then like close to a year after. And as time went on, their sperm DNA looked like the lean people. So, the, so wow. basically losing the weight, just losing the weight had an effect on these genes that are involved in cognition and metabolism. And like I said, you know, lots of, of animal studies have shown obesity has a negative effect on like, you know, causing type 1 diabetes later in life and different you know, cognitive disabilities and things like that. So, you know, it is something like p people that are wanting to conceive might might consider, you know, their, you know, their health before trying to procreate. You know, it's, it's, I'm not saying that, you know, you shouldn't procreate if you're not, you know, healthy, but it's just something, you know, another thing to think about. And, and, and also, I think it's a motivating factor for people because sometimes you don't care as much about yourself. I mean, some people don't, they're just kind of like, but their child or their unborn child, that's probably, you know, an, a, a driver for, for people to make a change like that. Well, like, I would certainly hope it would be. I mean, you have this opportunity to really literally change the way your child develops. And it's just by your discipline. Right. Just by whether or not you're taking care of your own body. You can literally change the future of your child. So Because you're saying that these genes that are in this obese man's sperm, the way they're represented, they're, that's going to be passed on to the kid. Yeah. Versus the lean version of him. Those genes we've passed on to the kid. The kid literally will have a different starting point exactly. in life, which a different is crazy. Starting point. It's totally crazy. Yeah, and I mean, of course, the the child itself can change things through epigenetics, through their right. diet and lifestyle. But you're giving them a baseline here, right? Yeah. I mean, so it's 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 definitely a very it's a growing field. A lot of the research is done in in animals because it's really difficult to, to do that sort of these sorts of experiments in humans. But I think that this is sort of a proof of principle at, at the very least, mm -hmm. looking at the, the sperm DNA. Um, you know, so it, it's it's something to consider. And I've had like, like friends of friends that have, you know, that are that are overweight or obese and wanting to like have children. And so it's like I try to talk to him about that in a in a way that's not like condescending. Yeah. You know, some people some people do have a hard time. They try to lose weight and, you know, this they, they have to find the right combination of things that works for them. But um, but I do think that people would get more motivated if they're like, wow, I can you know, affect my future child's risk for type 1 diabetes or for, you know, like how well, what their IQ is, how well they're performing on learning and memory tests. So, And also avoid the horrific guilt that you would feel if you didn't do that and you started to see these things manifesting in your child. And right. you realize, oh my God, I set this kid up in a shitty way because I'm lazy. 
which is essentially what a lot of the problem is with people. It's just they they don't have what whatever the mental you know. And people get angry if you say that they're they're lazy because they don't diet. For, forget that word. Forget take take away the word lazy. You're unmotivated. Let's say that. But for whatever reason, if you choose not to take care of your health and you see that transfer into your child's and you know that you're unhappy with your existence, you know you're unhappy with your physical body, and you refuse to do or for whatever reason don't do enough, and then you see these same problems manifesting in your own baby and you realize like, oh my God, I started this kid off in a shitty way. Like you're going to be riddled with guilt. Totally. I mean, the thing is, most people don't know about epigenetics and they don't right. know that they're, that they're able to do that. So the more the more pe- the people are educated, I think the better the outcome will be. But like you said, the people that do know and then still do it, it's like, yeah, the guilt. I mean, that's like <sighs> unbelievable. Well, it's like people who smoke when they have a kid. You know, that's that's so insane. You see people that are pregnant smoking. I was in um, I forget what state it was in. But we were outside this convenience store, and there was a lady who was clearly pregnant, and she clearly was smoking cigarettes. And I was like, fuck, man. That's just... It was Canada. It, I was like, this hurts my feelings, just watching that. It just hurts my feelings. Doesn't it just make you sick? Yeah, that's like... Yeah. You know, and there's all sorts of, you know, studies that have shown, you know, of course, smoking during pregnancy causes... Or not causes, but have been associated with, like, um, ADHD and... Um, uh, what's it called? Uh like like the movement, just like a like a dyskinesia thing, you know, all sorts of problems. So yeah. it's certainly like I having the knowledge, you know, and, and continuing to read throughout pregnancy. And then once, you know, having the baby, like one thing that I knew that I really, really wanted to do was I wanted to breastfeed. Like that was, you know, like there the benefits of breastfeeding are just amazing. And, and this is something that like my like my stepmother, for example, her generation, also my my grandmother, they didn't know about this. Like, so they weren't recommended to breastfeed, you know, back in like the fifties, like it just wasn't, you know, the benefits weren't known. Uh, But now we know like breastfeeding, it's kind of amazing. There are something, there's something in, in breast milk called human milk oligosaccharides. Have you heard of these HMOs? There's like 200 different of oligos, human milk oligosaccharides in breast milk. In fact, it's like the third most common, uh, factor in breast milk behind lactose and fat, 200 different ones. And they cannot be digested at all by like the, the infant's um, digestive system. It's like they co-evolved specifically to feed the microbiome in the gut of Whoa. these infants. And they're, and they're specifically increasing the species of bacteria. Um, Bifidobacteria infantis is one really, really important one. But it's it's amazing that they're it's it's really that's the only purpose that they serve is to feed and you know basically populate the infant gut with this beneficial bacteria and you know this bacteria has been shown to one set up the immune system because they digest these oligosaccharides and they produce other molecules called short chain fatty acids and those short chain fatty acids like lactate butyrate acetate things that you've heard of, those um, act as what are called signaling molecules to basically determine what kind of immune cells you're going to make. So a big one that they do is they they make uh, T regulatory cells, which are a kind of immune cells that prevents autoimmunity, autoimmune responses. So like children that are not um, that that are not breastfed, they ha- they lack like four different uh, species of um, of of gut bacteria, and they have like a three threefold increased risk of allergies and um, you know autoimmune related diseases. So it's like it's doing that, and also it's like preventing pathogenic bacteria from from like taking residence there. 
um, because these human milk oligosaccharides, not only are they feeding the beneficial bacteria, well, recently it's been found that they like break down biofilms that bacteria create to like, you know, basically escape antimicrobial activity. So there's a lot of antimicrobial things in breast milk, like lauric acid, which is also found in coconut oil. Um, but the, the human milk oligosaccharides basically break down the biofilms so that the lauric acid can work better. So it's wow. like, you know, and there's stem cells. There's stem cells in breast milk, mammary stem cells. Whoa. Like that blew my mind. I think like it's been like 10 years since the discovery of that. But like it's been so it's it, they, they, the studies have been mostly done in mice, but they have measured humans, you know, have uh, the same mammary type of, of stem cells in their breast milk. But in animals, in preclinical studies, it's been shown that those that those breast stem cells, they get digested, they go into the, the bloodstream, and then they go to various organs. They go to the kidney, the liver, the brain, and they start to, like, in the pancreas, they start to make, like, insulin-producing cells. Like, it's crazy. Wow. So That's amazing that only 10 years ago they didn't know this. Yeah, I know. It's, it's all happening so fast when it comes to it our is. knowledge of nutrition and the, the effect on the body and especially developing yeah. children. Well, the breast milk thing is really what's interesting because once I like, you know, I had my son and you immediately, you know, start breastfeeding, like I had no idea it was going to be so difficult. Like I thought it was just, and maybe it's not difficult for everyone, but I think it's difficult for a lot of women. And a lot of women give up after like the first two weeks. They they give up because, you know, it's just for, you know, various reasons. It, it's, it can be extremely frustrated. You're a new parent, you're getting no sleep. And, you know, so um, like I, my son had a little bit of a tongue tie where like the little thing on underneath his tongue, um, kind of prevented his tongue from moving like as much as it's supposed to. So like he, when he opened his mouth and he'd latch on, there was a little bit of problem. So the first two weeks were really hard for me, but that sort of resolved, but I really had to try like my, like Dan and I were, we were taking, I was pumping some some milk and we were putting it in a syringe with a little tube and like putting it on the breast, you know, because I didn't want to introduce the bottle so right. early. So, I mean, and that was hard. I, I mean, I was getting no sleep. I mean, I could totally see if you didn't know all the benefits of breastfeeding that I could, I could see how new mothers would, would, you know, give up because it's extremely difficult. So um, that's something, you know, that I completely understand. I, I understand now. Like I think previously, I was like, "How can anyone not breastfeed?" You know, it's so. Right. But it, it really, it's not. It's not easy for everyone. There's all sorts of problems that women have. Uh, but there are actually breast milk banks that, like, so women can donate their breast milk, and um, people, you know, can can buy the breast milk instead of getting formula. Now, of course, there's all sorts of other problems. It's like, well, are they getting enough vitamin D and Omega three and what else are they taking? You know, so yeah, there's so many different things that happen once you have children. Uh, breast milk being um, breastfeeding, I'm sure being one of them. But the the lack of sleep thing, which I think most people just really don't don't have any idea like what what is happening. And then they also don't understand how difficult it is to watch a child. And right now it's difficult. Wait till the kid starts walking. They start walking around. You have to follow them around. You're literally like walking around with them everywhere they go. Like, ah, don't put that in your mouth. Right. Don't touch that. Lick that. You'll get electrocuted. <laughs> it's like everywhere you go. It's, it's, it's such a. I, mean, I don't want to say a project. It's, it's some. It's just way more difficult and consuming than. And also, your protective instincts are ramped up so high. Like my friend Eddie had uh, cats. 
and uh, rabbits. And he's talking about how much he loves his rabbits. And he's like, and I'm like, dude, just wait until you have your kid. You're going to want to kill those fucking rabbits. <laughs> he's like, no way, man. I love the cats. I love the rabbits. And as soon as he had the kid, he's like, fuck, you're right. The cat's annoying. He goes, my cat wakes up my kid. I want to kill those fucking cats. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Your it's protective weird. mechanisms, I know. It changes you. It changes you so much. And, you know, people that don't have children and who complain about kids that are crying. I used to, it used to bother me. Like, if I was on a plane and babies were crying, you know, I used to be like, God, this baby won't shut up. But now I'm like, oh, poor little baby. Like, I literally, it doesn't bother me. Like, like someone could be right next to me with a crying baby. And I feel bad for the baby. It doesn't bother me like, damn, this baby won't shut up. It's like a different feeling. Yeah, totally. I, I, I've started to experience that to some degree in, in various ways as well, yeah. where it's like you just, oh, the poor baby. You, you know, become you a different empathy. person. Yeah, 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 you do. You really do. And it's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the best thing ever. Like, well, I mean, so. it creates so much empathy. I mean, it just my, my whole perspective of what a person is is different. Uh, my, my idea of a person used to be a static form, like Jamie's 35. What are you, 35? 34. Like, I would say, oh, that's 34-year-old Jamie. That's who he is. I never thought, oh, Jamie was a baby. Like, Jamie used to be a four-year-old. Like, Jamie went to preschool. Jamie went to kindergarten. I never would thought about it that way. I'd be like, oh, there's Jamie. Hey, what's up, Jamie? Jamie's always been Jamie. You know, that's like how I used to look mm -hmm. at people. Now I look at everybody as a baby. Like, oh, that's a baby that became a grown man. Like, that's how I look at everyone now. It's, so, it's, it's weird. It's like a paradigm shift happened in my brain. That is, that's, that's definitely weird. It made me way more compassionate, wow. way, way nicer to people. Just way, I just, I think, I don't want anybody's life to fall apart anymore. I used to like, like I hope that guy gets hit by a truck. You know, like, now I'm like, man, I hope that little baby figures out why he's such an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> it would be interesting to kind of see the brain activation pathways that change. Yeah. Like, you know, if you're talking about being more compassionate, that's almost like, I mean, there's a certain type of meditation that's like compassion meditation yeah. that people do that changes like certain parts of the brain. It'd be kind of interesting to see. My, like Dan thinks that I've gotten more creative, you know, because I make up all these like mommy games and mommy songs. Just like I never was really a super, super creative person. I'm more analytical. You know, I've got I definitely have some creativity, but like he he's kind of like, I wonder if just like becoming a mommy, like you just all of a sudden mm. become more creative, you know. I don't know. I'm sure there's a bunch of stuff going on. I mean, your brain just gets activated. Like, I I do stuff with my seven year old sometimes, and half the time we're doing stuff. I'm like, I can't even believe you're real. Like, I'm having these little conversations with her. We're playing little games, and you know, like we play this really stupid game. It's so dumb. So you spin this thing, and it's like it corresponds to different color acorns, and you know. And mm -hmm. when and she wins and she jumps up, she's like, "Ooh, I beat you!" <laughs> and she's like doing her little dance and she's like throwing her arms in the air. And I'm like, "This is like half of me is laughing because she's funny, but half of me is going, this is so strange that you're a little person that I'm talking to.' Right? Like you, you were a baby, and now you're this little seven-year-old playing this game with me. It's like it's so odd. I I feel that way with my four-month-old. I see little personality things already kind of creeping up, and it's like. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I can only imagine, like, as he continues to develop. I mean, That's why it's very, I think it's very difficult for people that don't have children to sort of develop that same level of compassion. It sounds like a cop out. It sounds like, it sounds weird, but I, re I really do. I think there's something, there's actually something to be gained. And, as far as like everyone reproducing, well, obviously we have too many people. So that's <laughs> not, I don't know if that's the best thing. And I, I, I certainly think that you could be 
uh, a fully formed, healthy, wonderful person who contributes an amazing thing to the world if you don't have children. I don't think you have to have children. But I think for me, it was it was very much there was a there was a giant learning experience along with it, there was a giant evolving experience along with just being a parent. It was something happened to me. Yeah, it's 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 absolutely life changing. Yeah. Um, it's, I, I had no idea, like I've always heard people say, it's the best thing that happened to me. And yeah. it, it truly is. I mean, it, it truly is the best thing. And, uh, so, you know, I, I'm, I just, I'm excited to, to continue to see how it changes me. And it just you know. unfortunately corresponds with a lot of financial stress with a lot of people, time stress, financial stress, last lack of sleep. And sometimes right. they just don't appreciate it. You know, it's just, you're so overwhelmed by the burden of just trying to get by that sometimes you can't appreciate this amazing moment that happened in front of you. And it's, you know, it's hard. It's hard to, it's hard to have a good perspective and it's hard, it's hard to like be able to see things from above, like to sort of rise above and look at the big picture of this thing. Totally. And that's for me, something that really helps with that is, is exercise. Sure. And, and I think that also, you know, I didn't have any postpartum depression, at least I I think I didn't. I mean, I felt. What do you think causes that? I think there's a variety of factors. I mean, so for one, you know, your um, during pregnancy, your estrogen levels like they like they go through the roof. I mean, it's like like a hundredfold higher, and hundredfold something like that. Wow. Like it's really high compared to your baseline. And don't quote me. I mean, something 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 like that. Like of just orders and orders of magnitude higher. And estrogen has been shown to increase the expression of a gene called tryptophan hydroxylase 2 in the brain that produces serotonin from tryptophan. So you're constantly making serotonin, constantly, constantly, constantly. And then, you know, after you have the baby, that goes away. So it's kind of like a withdrawal. So that's sort of one biochemical explanation. But there are many others. One, I think your circadian rhythm is off. You're not... For, you're not getting enough light because you're like nesting. You're like you're like. I don't think we left. I mean, I don't even remember going outside for like two weeks. Maybe. Really? Yeah. It was like you know, especially with the difficult breastfeeding part. So it was like you're constantly inside. You're not getting that bright light exposure. Your sleep is completely disrupted. So your circadian rhythm, which is you know extremely extremely important for for mood, um, for the way you feel. Uh, that is completely disrupted because you're you're waking up you know multiple times a night and and that's completely gone, um, and uh, and it's stressful. It's like completely new experience. You have this like very fragile baby you know that you're responsible for, and so I think that combination of all these things um, really can can play a role in that. Uh, and for me, I I really tried to make sure I was getting exercise as soon as I could. You know, so that is something because exercise for a variety of reasons. One, it's been shown to increase the production of serotonin by getting um, transport of tryptophan into the brain. So branch chain amino acids, uh, which are found in, you know, a variety of of, um, proteins, uh, they can outcompete tryptophan to get into the brain. And so if you're not exercising, you're constantly getting the branch chain amino acids in the brain, which are serving other important roles but you're not getting that tryptophan. So you're not getting the precursor to make serotonin. And so the exercise alleviates that, that competition. Branch chain amino acids get taken up into your muscle where they're, you know, they're used to help build muscle, which is good. And the tryptophan gets into the brain. So you're making serotonin. That's one. Two, you're making, um, you know, endorphins. Uh, beta endorphins help. 
So that that's another thing. And then um, the you're you're increasing the production of new neurons through serotonin, also through brain-derived neurotrophic factor. That also has been shown to help alleviate depression um, and and prevent depression. The actual neurogenesis, the thing that helps you stave off brain aging, which by the way, there's been like there was like 14 clinical trials that have been analyzed um, looking at humans that that undergo like aerobic exercise and how they have like their left part of their hippocampus doesn't like atrophy like people who do not exercise you know mm. so that's like because the neurogenesis but that that's another reason you know so, they, so you can visually see it atrophy the use some sort of an mri or yeah something? have you ever looked if you like google like alzheimer's disease brain like there's there's images all over the place where they show like before and after and there's just like big holes in the brain i mean it's just like well, it's I did like, because someone was comparing it to a football player. <clears throat> was what's the the guy's name who fell off the car? The guy was uh, Henry, Chris Henry. Chris Henry. He was, um, I think, he was only twenty eight, right? Maybe twenty six. <clears throat> he was a young man who was uh, an NFL football player. No one had any idea he had CTE. This is like uh, earlier understand. I believe this is like seven years ago, somewhere around there. Um much less understanding about the the effects of CTE and he had some sort of an altercation with his girlfriend chased after her she was she jumped in a car and he didn't want her to leave so he jumped on top of the truck to try to hang on and fell off the truck and killed himself oh, uh, yeah so they do an autopsy on him and they find out that he has a brain of a 70 year old man with Alzheimer's whoa and he's 28 some 26 28 whatever he was he was young under 30 and super athlete just and they were stunned and they looked at his brain and they're like well this is this is this doesn't even make sense and now they're finding that this is the case with so many football players mm -hmm. just you, you when you went to see the ufc right. <laughs> when you and dan went to see the ufc and i talked to you afterwards we all went to dinner afterwards and you your eyes were as big as dinner plates and you were like this is so bad so many bad things are happening and then you started going into detail about the various things that were happening. It was so fascinating to watch you, uh, a scientist, watch people get head kicked and punched in the face and watch watch MMA take place. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of crazy to, to think about how people, like, as a profession, go and get, like, they're getting TBI, like, constantly getting their head bashed yeah. in. And, you know, there there are, there's definitely, like, if you look at the non- you know, fighting forms. So it's like of martial arts where they're like, it, it seems a lot more beautiful, like cool, like moves and stuff, you know, but like, like the actual, like getting your head bashed and stuff, mm. like that's crazy. It's so crazy, <laughs> you know, and I understand money is a big driving factor because they probably make a lot of money, but you know, what, what, what's it worth when you're not able to enjoy it when you're older and you, you just lose your brain, you know? It's not just money. It's the excitement of it. The way I describe it is it's high-level problem-solving with dire physical consequences. High-level problem-solving? Yeah, that's just what fighting is. Like, you have a skill set, I have a skill set. Like, we're playing a game. And the game is, I want to try to hit you with my bones. And you're trying to hit me with your bones. Mm. And we're trying to figure out who's better at it. And I know that you know what I know. You, you Like, if you get to a certain level... Yeah. Like you say, what I, that's one of the things that I love about jujitsu is that jujitsu sort of solves this, but it does so without hitting each other. Jujitsu is all grappling, and there's obviously a lot of injuries that come th from jujitsu. I think that's what I meant when I when I was yeah. seeing something yeah. that looks kind of cool. Yeah, like the World Jujitsu Championships just happened this past weekend. I was watching some of the videos online, 
and you watch these really high-level guys going after it, and it's it's amazing. It's beautiful. They're t- attacking and counterattacking, and you just and me in my mind, I'm thinking of the countless hours of dedication and focus it's required to reach this level of proficiency, where they're just they know what to do and when to do. It. They're trying to counter, and they know, and they're both black belts at a very high level. So it's like you're 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 examining this game, and it doesn't have. Um, the same feeling when someone loses that an MMA fight has. Like I watched the UFC this past weekend and there's some brutal knockouts. And when you watch someone get KO'd and you see their, their brain shut off and their legs stiffen up and they go flat. It's, I saw I saw someone get knocked out. Yeah. With that. I forgot who it was, but it was like one of the last like most exciting fights and it was like he, I mean, it was, it was crazy. Yeah. I mean, for sure. And, and I think I, we talked about this, you know, last time you know a couple years ago but the apoe4 gene i think really is something that would at least give some insight because i mean it's known that people that have at least one allele of those of that gene they can you know have really really bad consequence if they get tbi i mean we're talking 10 to 20 fold more um risk for cte for other you know 20 fold more if they have yeah if they have two copies of it so they're like homozygous which is a lot less common uh, one copy is more common. That would be, um, you know, anywhere like a like a two to five fold. But when you have two copies, it can be it can be up ten to twenty fold higher. So that's something that's like you know, with with the, with the MMA or the um, UFC kind of fighting. I mean, or football or boxing or you know, fill in the blank sports that you know is very um, has a high risk for for a TBI. Like I think that's something that athletes should consider um, and and you probably would find ones that would say hey maybe i shouldn't do this you know right especially well, if you're seeing two. that with football players now quite a few football players who are aware of this uh-huh. are actually backing out of the nfl at a very young age they, they have headaches so there was a, a guy recently he was 24 years old just retired he's like i'm done yeah you know and he has a bright future apparently well let's we got sidetracked so you were talking about um exercise and the um the what put the hippocampus? Oh yeah, yeah. So the 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 benefits on of exercise on the brain, which I know that I constantly talk about this to you because it's but it's just so, you know, it's so damn important. It's so important. It's so important. It and, is. And it is. It's one of those things that like it helps me with everything. With you know, and and the brain aging is like it's like, it's the long term effect. So it helps me with the short term, which is like handling life and handling stress. You were talking about how people have a hard time you know, seeing things from a higher level. And, and it's so true, you know, because life is hard, you know, you have to like make it, you have to survive. And if you don't have a starting place, a starting, if your baseline is, is kind of like, you don't have a lot to start with and it's, you have to work all, you know, all the more work you have to put in. So I think that, you know, getting distracted with trying to make money, trying to like survive and try to you know, try to like live a good life and get married and have kids and all this, it can be really stressful. So, you know, I have, of course, my own stresses, but I think that um, the exercises, the short, the short term effects I get from that, you know, are helping with clarity, helping me with um, being able to kind of take a take a step back and not be so anxious. And there's there's controlled trials showing this as well with with exercise. Um, You know, I for the longest time have been a runner and running is like for me. You know, I love the the frame of mind I'm in when I'm running. Like it's kind of like this reflective daydreaming, which 
some people and some studies say, well, daydreaming is not good because you're ruminating when you're daydreaming. But I think the daydreaming that you do when you're like running is a lot different from like if you were ha- you and I were having this conversation right now, but I wasn't present. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. So that's called rumination. And that that's like that's a stressful kind of daydreaming. Spacing out. Yeah. Where you're where you're not present because you're like worried about this other thing right. you have to do. Right. But the, the, the daydreaming effect when I'm running is a little bit more of a reflective like. It's a good, it, it's like a cleansing for me. Yeah, so I I've feel always, the same way. When you run? Yeah. Yeah, I saw that you've recently gotten into that, which yeah, is. Yeah, over the past year. But, literally last January I started because uh, a friend of mine had a, a run uh, in, in Vegas, a 5K. I jumped in it with zero running at all. And I was like, <laughs> God, this is fucking hard. I was like, I'm in shape. I'll just go run. But I, I never ran, like uh-huh. literally never. Now I run every week. <clears throat> and it was hard for you, right? Because you're yeah, it's right. Hard, but what's interesting is my cardio for everything else has gone through the roof. It's wet because I'm running like brutal trails, like really steep mountain trails, and I'm doing the most I do is four miles. The least I do is one mile. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I do two, but it's it's essentially hill sprints. <clears throat> okay, so you're doing some, yeah. you're getting some high intensity in there. You're sprinting. It's very high intensity, and it's all it's all like really extensive cardio. It's like it's yeah. heavy duty right. stuff. Right, I, I run it with my dog now too, dude. It's that's awesome. awesome. So what's interesting is for me um, after pregnancy, like I couldn't wait to go out running, and so I think it was four weeks in after four weeks four weeks postpartum, I went out for a run. I saw your Instagram post. Yeah. Okay. So I went out <laughs> for a run. I was super. That's probably the only post I did because. What I found out as I was running is I didn't feel so great. Like I felt like my bladder felt full, even though it wasn't. Like and so I would I would stop and go to the bathroom like on my run, and then I would I was like okay, and then run again. It still felt full, and I was like this is not normal. Like this, you know. So, um, so I went to my OBGYN, talked to him, and uh, apparently your pelvic floor like changes after having a baby, and that can like, you know fall down and kind of hit your bladder a little and so it feels some women actually like pee and urinate when they're running like I never had it like that well he looked at my pelvic floor and was like on a scale from zero to ten zero being the best you're a one and I'm like really because I feel like a seven you know and mm. so he was like well you probably shouldn't have started running so soon so don't do that uh, oh. why don't you start doing some low impact exercise and start doing um, these like strength like strengthening your pelvic floor with like kegels and like some core strengths, which I've been doing. So I, so I was like, crap, what am I going to do? Like running, I would just walk out the door and go, you know, run. And that was like my escape. So I started doing this, um, this cycling class, high intensity interval, um, cycling class, which is, it's an hour long and it's a spin class, but it's not like the dancey spin. So it's the, it's a, it's a spin class where, um, you do hills and sprints and, it's it's an hour long, but you're mixing it with just aerobic, and so you're you, you'll, you get these sprints and these hills, and I mean I really 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 like it for multiple reasons. You know, one is um, the group setting where I feel like the people around me, I'm like they're still going at it, you know. So it's like motivating. So mm, I, I keep yeah. going too. There's something about that group that really like I push. If I if it were just me on that bike for an hour, there's no way I would be pushing it like I do. <laughs> like I am pushing it. It's like amazing pushing it. Yeah. Um, I feel that way about yoga class. Same thing. Yeah. I think yoga the group. classes, everyone's sort of totally. feeding off each other. Right, right. Yeah. And then also having the instructor, like, mm-hmm. there's a couple instructors that I really, really like, and, you know, because they like their style and they're kind of more like coaches um, than the kind of instructor that kind of makes you want to feel. There's the instructor that's like, they, their cheerleader kind of want to make you feel good. And then there's the instructor where they're like a coach, where they're like, they're trying to help you right. get better. 
So, um, so I got into this high intensity, high intensity interval training and I've never really been into it that much. Like I was, you know, I would do some, um, like jump squats and things like that, like at home. But this is the first time I'm like really a structured environment and really doing it. So I started reading about it, like wanting to know, cause that's how I am. If I do something, I'm like, well, I want to look into it and either it'll motivate me to like really keep it up and do it more. Or I'll be like, nah, this isn't good. You know? So I started reading more and more about it and it's amazing the benefits of the high intensity so you were talking about how how like your your i think what you were describing was your aerobic capacity change change for the big one is kickboxing like the when when i hit the bag Mm -hmm. it used to be that i would i would struggle to do a three minute round of of high high intensity like hitting the bag Mm -hmm. kickboxing but now i can i get through it the bell goes off and i'm like really okay like the bell just went off all right that's three minutes and then I'll have the 30-second rest. By the time 30-second rest is up, I'm fully recovered, and I'm back in again. I just, it's, I mean, like, I have more than double the endurance That's I used awesome. to have. So, so they're, they're, what you're experiencing has been studied um, in clinical studies. Basically, this aerobic capacity, also people call it um, VO2 max, which is mm. basically the ability of your lungs and your blood and your heart to carry oxygen to your muscles or places that are, you know, during that intense push. So the capacity to do that, right? Well, as we age, over the age of 25, once we hit 25 and we continue on, our aerobic capacity decreases by 10% per decade. So like 1% per year, right? So you're basically, you know, 25, you're 35, your your VO2 max your is like 10% less than you were when you were 25. Well, it turns out doing these high intensity interval classes, doing 24 of them, which in this study, it was like they were 40 minutes long and there was four four minute pushes and then there's you know recoveries in between and all that blah 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 stuff they were able to improve and after eight weeks of doing 24 high intensity classes improve their vo2 max by like 12 percent. so you're basically adding a decade you know back so how going, many weeks well they did it they did 24 classes of this in eight weeks wow so what the interesting thing about that study was they were also testing whether or not like like um doing it i, forgot, I think i think it was like four weeks or something really like short just packing them all in, um, that actually didn't increase the VO2 max as much because the recovery time was actually important. It's actually changed the way I think about when it comes to training and my advice that I give to people for training. Because I used to think that it was adequate to just do the sport-specific workouts. Like, say, if you wanted to get better at jiu-jitsu, just do your jiu-jitsu. If you want to get better at kickboxing, just do your kickboxing. The cardio you get from that will be enough. I don't think that's the case anymore because I'm stunned at how much of an increase in cardio that I've gotten from these hill sprints. And now I realize, like, okay, what you can do is that you can do it independently of that work, and it doesn't really mess with that work. Like, say, if I run in the morning and I get a good two-mile run, I can still hit the bag at 3 in the afternoon. But the difference will be is that, like, my legs will be tired from running, but they're not the same muscles that I use when I kickbox. But what's, mm. it's, it's similar in a lot of ways, but what's, what's really changing for sure is that my aerobic capacity yeah. is just way bigger. It's That's just, awesome. It's just different. That's actually a marker of aging, aerobic capacity, VO2 mm. max. I've never actually measured my own VO2 max. Um, That's probably, when you have to put that hose thing so. in your mouth. I kind of want to do it because just now that it. I'm doing all this high intensity work and I'm totally going to stick with it. Like, I love it. Mm. Um, but I definitely want to get back to the running and I've been sort of worried about I can only do so much as a new mom and working and all. <laughs> like, what about a tre- would you be interested in a treadmill or no? 
You know, I love running outside, like um, mm-hmm. in nature, um, whether it's in the beach or um, like in the, in the hills, rolling hills and stuff. But you know, for the longest time, I lived in Tennessee, and um, the, the weather there is not great. And so I did do treadmill running. And so yeah, I mean, I've definitely, I don't, I, I don't have the the same daydreaming like effect. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that I, but I do definitely. I mean, it's it, it's definitely good, and I I get a lot from it from a treadmill. But there's something about, in fact, there was some interesting study that I don't know how long ago, maybe a year ago or two, that looked at um, people that exercise. I think they went for like walks or something in nature versus like in the metropolitan area. And the benefits, there was there was more benefits in going for the walks in nature um, in terms of like, you know, psychological benefits, but also some of the variety of like biomarkers that were measured. Mm. Um, so... It's kind of interesting, you know. It is interesting. I mean, I think we like to think of ourselves as being detached from what we experience just in terms of even just visually. But I, I think that those things have an effect on, like, not just how you think, like how you feel, but who you are. I mean, I, I think we are we have some sort of a symbiotic relationship with our environment. And when your environment is cement and glass and concrete and rubber and all the things that we've created in cities – that there's a dull feeling that you get from those things. And then when you, you can go and see a green meadow and birds flying around and, and the, the wind whistling through the leaves, like you, you just, it does something to your body. Like does something, not just to your mind, there's something going on. Like you, you're, you have like this feeling of, ah, oh, this is medicine. Like this is, I'm getting something out of this. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's, you know, the, the noise pollution, the sound, you know, like, the this this cars and all that that's been shown to have a negative effect on people's like emotions and and um you know of course there's the environmental things you're breathing in pollution and that you know has been shown to increase inflammatory biomarkers and all that but there's certainly i think um the just going out into nature and you 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 feel better you yeah. do you definitely you definitely feel better uh it's not you know not it, i live in the city and i live off of a, a busy place and Thankfully, we're going to be moving, but that's something I'm considering where it's just like... Are you moving specifically for that reason? No, we're just in a small apartment right now. Mm-hmm. And it's like I have a baby now. and right. just, <laughs> It's fine for two people. It's not, yeah, it was fun. It was close to the beach. And, yeah. you know, it was it's fun. Like, but just it's not something that that, you know... I could do with 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 a baby, especially in such a small space. And yeah. there's motorcycles that go by and it's like it's crazy. Like the motorcycles... The, oh, they if you're rev by the up. beach, yeah, Brrr, yeah, because they're riding Davidson by. Guys. Exactly, they're riding by, yeah, and it's like that's a bummer. It's it's yeah. If it wakes so. you up too. Now, so um, also like a yard is good for a kid, right. right? Exactly, but it's hard. It's hard in California, you know. I mean, like we were saying, you know, it's not easy. So there's things you ha- there's just all this stuff you have to consider when your your priorities change. You know, mm. Now that you when you have a, a child, it's like you got to think of all the things schools and this and that and neighbors and who are they going to be friends with and yeah like oh my god <laughs> uh, like, before i forget i, I want to take tell people go to chris cresser's uh instagram or his uh excuse me his twitter page and there's a, an article on acetaminophen and women who are pregnant consuming acetaminophen and the negative consequences it has for your children See, more evidence, uh, it says here that the exposure to acetaminophen may be a part of ADHD puzzle. A Norwegian study, pregnant women took acetaminophen for 29 days or more, had a more than twofold risk of having children with ADHD. 
Yeah. Wow. So, I, think, I think I've seen I think I even tweeted something like this like a couple of years ago where it, this isn't the first study. Yeah. Where it's in the it's, New York Times right now, apparently. And that's what people are prescribed, right? During yeah. pregnancy. Right. Scary shit. There's I mean, it's, it's how many things we find out from like the 1960s were terribly detrimental to children and doctors were telling you this is way, the way you should go. I mean, there's, there's so right. Yeah. And and that's the you know, with um when I was pregnant, there was there were certainly some things that I opted out of that were probably more standard of care, you know, so uh, just because of concern and, and yeah. not that I knew for a fact that something was going to happen, but I had doubt. And that was enough for me to, to sort of weigh, you know, the, the benefits and the risks. And I was like, well, um, you know, so. Well, there's even talk about vaccination protocols like not whether or not i mean i'm not an anti-vaccination person i think yeah. vaccinations are important but i think that there's there's a lot of merit in the idea of that you shoot a kid up with 36 different shots when they're six weeks old or whatever where at whatever age they start them at i mean right out of the box they give a lot of doctors want to give your kid a series of shots and that there's some there's some concern that the actual consequences of all of these different vaccines being put into your child's body very early, and a large number of them, have some sort of negative consequences. It, you know, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I'm also not an anti-vaxxer. I think vaccines are important. I'm going to vaccinate my son. But, um, and I've, I've already given, I'm a little behind on the schedule. I've given him one. But so what you're saying is is true. There is, like, even on the CDC website, it says, that you know some of these vaccines can cause um, fevers and uh, epileptic seizures, seizures, seizures um, in in infants, and but that there's no long-term consequence of that, and and that's kind of like you know if you look if you look at the literature and and how the immune the immune system responds to some of these vaccines, especially if you're giving like five at once. I mean, the the first uh, round of vaccines that I'm supposed to do it was like. It was like five different vaccines. And so what I'm opting to do is actually do them in singles where you. So the, the That's reason what we did. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like why the, the immune response is, you know, kind of the thing that's scary. And you don't really know how a child's immune system is going to react. And there are studies. I was particularly worried about it during pregnancy. And that's when one of the things I opted out of was getting um, the Tdap. Uh, vaccine, which mm -hmm. is they want to give it to you when you're, I forgot how many weeks pregnant, um, 30 something, I think. And uh, to protect, basically pass on antibodies for whooping cough, you know, to the to the baby. And so I opted out and I said I would do it post, basically postpartum, like one day postpartum, because it takes about four weeks to transfer the antibodies in breast milk. So I still was going to, you know, get the vaccine, but I was going to do it after I had the baby. And the, and the reason I made that decision is because there have been um, a multiple studies now in uh, non-human primates that have looked, uh, and these studies came out of UC Davis, um, looked at pregnant female monkeys uh, when, they're, when they have a really strong immune response, so like a strong infection or, you know, who knows, a vaccine. The study didn't use vaccines, but I'm sort of, you know, drawing a parallel here, where it's just the immune response, having a very strong immune response, there was an autoimmune response that ended up having antibodies that attacked the, the developing brain. And, and the monkeys that were born from those mothers were had autistic-like behaviors. Mm. It's been shown in humans that mothers of autistic children are five times more likely to have antibodies floating around in their blood against fetal brain proteins. Like, they're not supposed to have antibodies in, against fetal brain proteins in their blood. So there's definitely 
been some link with the immune system, um, autoimmunity, particularly um, during pregnancy and an autism risk. Now, in terms of like the, the the young baby, you know, I'm 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 scared too, and I do I do worry that you know my my son's developing so great and like. I don't want to do something wrong. It's it's right. scary. It really is. And you know, I definitely, like I said, I'm going to vaccinate my son, and I have been doing singles. And the you have to like it's it's a little more inconvenient because you have to go to the doctor like so many times to do it. But the thing is, is that when you're not when you're not giving so many different vaccines at once, the immune response isn't going to be as strong. And there's a problem with this conversation. And one of the problems with this conversation is as soon as you talk about vaccines you immediately get lumped into a bunch of fucking crazy people that think that vaccines are some sort of a conspiracy and the government's trying to make money from you and you're an anti-vaxxer and they immediately box you in and start getting angry at you. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost, it's a weird thing because you're talking about chemicals that you're injecting into a child, right? And, yeah. But still, people are very hesitant to, to even look at that. They're very. They, they, you want to automatically just go with whatever the doctor says when it comes to vaccines. Until, but the real problem is until you look at like how much work has been done determining what the consequences are and how can you find out? How can you even know? No, right. You I really mean, can you unless can't. you have two of the exact. If you have a bunch of copies. You make a bunch of clones of a baby. And you, you expose them to the exact same environment, exact, exact same epigenetics, exact same environmental factors, and then one of you in, inject a bunch of chemicals into and one you don't. I mean, we know that vaccines are amazing. They have prevented polio. They have prevented a host of different diseases from becoming real issues. And we know that people who don't vaccinate their kids, they're the reason why measles are coming back. I mean, right. there's, there's real concerns. Absolutely. I think vaccines are amazing. I'm so happy they exist. But I also think that we have to be very careful with just jumping into things, just like we were talking before about things that they did as standard care during the 1960s are now prohibited. Like we know they're dangerous for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely 100 percent agree. And I think that there, there, there are now it's a growing field, at least in science, where there are there are scientists that are trying to understand the the gene interaction, the gene interaction with the immune system, because it, it you know, obviously almost everyone gets vaccinated. Right. I mean, and you don't have everyone walking around with all these with autism and all these. Things, but there there is something that is you know going on and you know a lot of parents have noticed changes of course after the vaccinations and so there there is a a, a new field of inquiry I, I do know that's ongoing where where scientists are, tr are beginning to now look at in addition to um, how the immune system is is reacting to some of these vaccines how specific genes you know regulating certain immune um, functions may differences in those genes called polymorphisms may you know predispose a child. Now, how are you going to know that? Like without doing a DNA test before you do the vaccine? I mean, it's a risk. Like you said, how do you know? It's, it, it definitely is a risk. Um, and that's, that's what's the scary thing, yeah. you know, and it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a dilemma that I've been facing. And, and, you know, I, I'm currently the reason I even delayed, I've only, you know, given my son two vaccines so far, but just because I'm trying to like exhaustively read the yes. literature as much as I can. 
Well, good for you. I'm glad. I'm glad that you're looking at it this way because it's it's something that there's a lot of pressure on people to not look at it that way. Like just just having this conversation. Joe Rogan and Rhonda Patrick are anti-vaxxers. That could be the that could be the title of some bullshit article that someone writes about this. I mean, and I've seen it time and time again where someone will write a clickbait title Mm -hmm. to an article and then someone will just read that and go, "Oh, you're an anti-vaxxer." Of course you are, you loser. And they'll right. get angry at you and throw some Twitter message your way that it's not representative of your actual thoughts on this at all. This is a very complex, very nuanced issue. It is. And I, and like like I said, I do think people should vaccinate their children. I do as well. And I'm vaccinating and my, children my son. have yeah. been all vaccinated. But I, I agree. It's a nuanced situ- topic that we... Um, you know, we don't we don't know the answer to. I mean, I think that this guy, what was his name? The thimerosal guy, the that doctor that got um, disbarred because he like falsified some data on on uh, thimerosal, the mercury and uh, causing autism. Yeah, he like falsified some data or what something. Was what was the story behind that? I don't he know the whole story. data that, that was showed. published that that linked um, thimerosal, which is the adjuvant that was that's found in a lot of vaccines. In California, they don't use that, as far as I know. As far as like, it's not used anymore. Was that the measles, measles mumps, rubella, MMR? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, what did he do? Like, he, what he, was? I don't. You know, it's not like I haven't done a super super in depth like analysis of what he did. To my understanding, Jamie just was that got he it. Jamie falsified. just pulled it up here. Journal retracts 1998 paper linking autism to vaccines. A prominent British medical journal Tuesday retracted a 1998 research paper that set off a sharp decline of vaccinations in Britain after the paper's lead author suggested that vaccines could cause autism. The retraction, blah, blah, blah. Reassessment uh, that has lasted for years uh, in the scientific methods and financial conflicts, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, who contended that his research showed that the combined measles, mumps, and rubella, rubella, how do you say it? Rubella, yeah. Rubella. Uh, vaccine may be unsafe, but the retraction may do little to tarnish Dr. Wakefield's reputation among parents groups in the United States, despite a wealth of scientific studies that have failed to find any link between vaccines and autisms. The parents fervently, I love that word, believe that their children's <laughs> medical problems resulted from vaccines. I know a lot of people that think their kids' medical issues came from vaccines. I know some, too. Yeah, and I'm not one to tell them they're wrong. And I don't know who's right or who's wrong, but I know there's a massive amount of money to discourage any sort of talk and thinking. And No one wants you to think there's anything wrong with vaccines. Vaccines can do no harm. But, you know, millions of dollars have been given out by the vaccine courts. It's it's not like there's there's vaccine courts that, that... take care of cases where people wow. have been damaged by vaccines. It's not, there's no, look, we were talking about this before the, the podcast started that we were going to discuss. The, the, there's, people vary biologically so much that one person can eat a, my friend Brian, his, his mom, if she eats a Brazil nut, she will die. I could eat a whole bowl Whoa. of those boring fucking nuts. They don't <laughs> do anything to me. I think they're boring. But, uh, they increase your selenium. But, oh, yeah. well, that's nice. It's good to have. But, I mean, they don't do anything ne- negative to me. Uh, but his mom will, will eat them and she dies. Now, that you can, I believe that you can extrapolate that and you can look at all sorts of different things that you take into your body. There are some people that are allergic to a host of different things that don't do a damn thing to me. And there's going to be people that are going to have reactions to vaccines. It's, just, it's a chemical. 
there's going to be something that happens in your body. So the idea that there's no link whatsoever to a chemical causing an adverse reaction, that doesn't jive. It doesn't make sense. To, to say that it's impossible, you could say it's extremely rare. That makes more sense. Right. But when they say there's no link, when you say no link, I have to go, what's motivating this? What's motivating you to say no link? Because when you're dealing with chemicals, there's always going to be a small percentage of a chance that your body has an adverse reaction to those chemicals. And it's not just chemicals. I mean, this is these are these are you know live bacteria, live bacteria, and you're eliciting an immune response, and immune responses vary as well. Yeah, you know, dramatically. I mean, some people have autoimmune diseases because their immune system gets so ramped up. I mean, you know, some people have. Um, you know, type 1 diabetes because their immune system is destroying their pancreatic beta islet cells that produce insulin. People are different, like you said. And it's funny because when that, when uh, Jamie pulled that up, my mind went to the same place where it's, it's just, it's the perfect example of how, you know, people respond differently to, to different things. And, you know, it's not, it, it's not just a chemical, but food. And this is a big, big field of inquiry is like the food because you've got, people battling just like with the vaxxer people that are anti-vaxxers versus people that want to vaccinate you've got people that are saying saturated fat is bad it's good protein's bad no it's good you've got you know all these camps of people that all you know are just basically like it's almost like a religion where they just they know what the best diet is and everyone should do it and and the reality is is that it may not be the best diet for everyone you know and that's something that we all vary yeah, I mean, that's something, you know, so so before the industrialized, you know, civilization occur, like occurred, food was like the food you would eat was, you know, according to where you lived geographically, right? Because you weren't getting food from all parts of the world. Like you were basically where whatever you could grow in that part of the world is what you would eat, right? And so like people would eat carbohydrates or fat, saturated fats or, you know, various foods, you know, different at different rates because they were you know that's what they had right and it's thought that you know uh over over time that humans adapted to the to the region and they adapted so that they could process you know basically process that food better and at least that's the theory the reality is it doesn't matter how it happened we know that that it's true I and mean, people have different variations in genes that are involved in nutrition and also in everything else so regardless of whether or not that's you know how it actually occurred it it happens and i think one of the best examples of that is a study that was published in 2015 in the journal of cell from the weissman institute 800 different people were given a continuous glucose monitor where their blood glucose levels were measured every five minutes and these people were then um, they submitted samples uh, for their for their DNA to be analyzed, and also their microbiome, which is the bacteria that live in the gut. And so, um, scientists then gave these groups of people various food types: either refined carbohydrate, like white bread, um, complex carbohydrates, like you know, like a banana, um, and then saturated fat, like cheese. And they measured people's glucose response to these various foods. Eight hundred different people. And what was found was that the glucose response varied vastly according to a person's genetic and also microbiome makeup. So people, you would think, well, people are going to have a high blood glucose response to white bread, maybe maybe somewhat to the banana, but there's fiber in there and that sort of changes the way you know, the, the glucose levels um, uh, reach the blood. But the reality was is that some people had high blood glucose to the saturated fat, which is sort of, you know, not people don't think about that. Um, so that this is this was sort of like one of the first proof of principle studies 
showing in 800 different people that people are different and they measured the various genes to show it and also their microbiome their gut bacteria varied as well because that changes the way you're metabolizing foods so um some of these genes like we know we know for example ppr alpha ppr gamma fto apoe4 which is what i have all change the way your body metabolizes um fats and uh, also way, the way your body transports like fatty acids and cholesterol throughout the body. And people with some of these polymorphisms in these genes, if they eat a high you know, saturated to low poly or monounsaturated fat r ratio, they can actually have more adverse effects. They can have a higher blood glucose, they can have higher LDL cholesterol, they can have a higher obesity risk, higher type two diabetes risk. You know, so, and that's, like I said, that's, that's something that most people that, were, that would eat a high, you know, saturated fat diet wouldn't have. And so I've actually been able to look at some of my genes because there's companies now that allow you to do that. And um, so, you know, I know that I have an APOE4. So that changes my my diet in a way. So, you know, it because the APOE4 um, not only predisposes you to Alzheimer's disease um, and also from um, adverse effects to TBI, but it also affects the way uh, cholesterol is transported in your body and it doesn't get recycled very well. So I have more cholesterol circulating my body at any given point um, compared to my husband, Dan, who doesn't have an APOE4 allele and we eat the exact same diet. Like my LDL will be like 20 points higher than his, you know, like. Is there, a, is there uh, a negative health effect to that? So well, it gets a little more complicated, but um, so that the, the LDL cholesterol, by the way, um, for a long time, it's been it's been thought to be a predictor of heart disease because with nutrition and here's the thing with nutrition is is that a lot of our studies are 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 what's called observational studies where we look at this population and we look at a disease risk and we say oh this person eats that and they have a higher risk of that or a lower risk or that right so it's a correlation it's not you're not you're not showing it's a causal factor right it's a correlation and it, it's notoriously like actually my my mentor um from my postdoc, Dr. Bruce Ames, he has this joke, the anal analogy, but it's a joke that he tells that really illustrates this type of study, epidemiology. It's, it's, he says that people that are born in Miami are born Hispanic, but they die Jewish. So you're born Hispanic. <laughs> and if you don't know the cult rich cultural history of Miami, whereas a lot of a la big Latino community, people come there from you know Cuba and various places. Right. But then old people go there to retire because they hate the cold and they want to like, you know, you know, move and move to Florida. So you just look at the data. If you just look at the birth records and the death records, you'll be like, oh, people are born Hispanic and they die Jewish. Wow. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> that is epidemiology. That's like it's very funny. It is. And it's it's a great like analogy because it really does highlight the complexity of doing these types of studies. There's all sorts of other factors that play a role. If Right. I mean, sure. So so the thing is, is that with nutrition in particular, you have to look at not just the epidemiological study, but you have to look at control, randomized controlled trials where they use biomarkers as predictors of certain diseases. You have to look at animal studies where mechanism is done to understand how things are working. You know, you have to look at the whole picture because if you just use these studies where, oh, you eat a low-protein diet, it's, you have a lower all-cause mortality, boom, I'm going to be a vegan. Well, guess what? Lots of other things are complicated. You know, there's there's lots of other factors or the saturated fat one. So you asked me, does LDL like does that predict your heart disease risk? Well, on a population level for a long time, it can because LDL um, LDL is, you know, 
one thing that transports cholesterol and higher levels of it have been associated with a variety of different heart disease risk factors. But the thing is, is that as, you know, as time has gone on and tools have got better and we're able to like look more at mechanism, scientists have now started to uncover, oh, there's multiple types of LDL. It's not just one type. There's different sizes of it that are circulating in the blood. And one size is really good. The large size, the large buoyant size is really good because it's delivering cholesterol to your cells and delivering fatty acids to your cells where you need it. Every time you make a new cell in your body, guess what? It needs cholesterol. It needs fatty acids. That's great. But there's also smaller sizes that that um, that are more dense and basically they can't get recycled back to the liver. There's a there's a a, a, basically a, a life cycle of the cholesterol. It's made in the liver, goes out in the bloodstream, you donates all this stuff to your various cells, and it goes back to the liver, and it's, you know, it's sort of like recycled. Well, if you can't recycle it, then it stays in your bloodstream sort of indefinitely, and then it can undergo inflammatory transformations there, and all sorts of things, you know, bad things happen. And so the longer you have something in your bloodstream, if it's there for, for, for like decades, Chances are some shit's going to go wrong, right? And is this a, a dietary issue or a hereditary issue in terms of like the size of the LDL? So the I don't know how much is known about the hereditary aspect of it. It's known that ApoE4 can increase the risk of just having more LDL total there, right? right? But and so what type of LDL? It, it's not known, just like regular total LDL, not looking at the particle size. Now, the particle size, what we do know is there's a big nutrition factor that regulates that. And the nutrition factor that regulates that is refined sugar. And that's been shown in controlled, randomized controlled trials, where like healthy men given almost like something that was like a soda, you know, um, they they were given a big drink of just sugar. Sugary drink for three weeks every day, and it t- completely increased their their inflammatory biomarkers by like 100. percent But it also ramped up their small LDL particle size. Now let me let me stop right here because this is a really important point um, for people that think that drinking a large glass of orange juice is different than drinking a glass of soda. It's really not. No, it's not because you're Isn't not you don't have the fiber. Crazy. I mean, that's crazy. If you if you say that to most people, they're like, what are you talking about? You're talking nonsense. No. If you have a 24-ounce glass of orange juice, you're getting a giant dump of sugar yeah. in your system. Right. And it's there's many people that think that that's a healthy thing to drink. Right. And so and that's and that's what complicates all these studies yes. is that you then have people eating for example, saturated fat, which is known to increase the large LDL. The healthy LDL. It's known to increase that and in combination, you have people that are drinking orange juice or even worse, eating cookies and cake and drinking bread. soda and bread, all that refined carbohydrate stuff. Now, those two in combination together, you've got, the, you've got the LDL. And then what happens is with the refined sugar is inflammatory transformations happen and you get the small dense. And so, so this is why it's a problem when people try to, t- to look at diet in very simplistic ways, right? When people try to say, if you eat saturated fat and if you eat cholesterol, you're going to have high cholesterol in your body and you're going to have heart attacks or going to have a stroke. I mean, this is this is a very simplistic this thing is. that people will often say. Yeah, it 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 very it, it it's it it really truly is. Like I said, it's you have to look at mechanism, controlled trials. You have to look at observational studies are also important. Um, you know, we also have looked controlled trials where people that are put on a high fat and low refined carbohydrate diet 
for, for, I don't know, a month or so or something like that. I don't remember the exact time had all like biomarkers lowered for heart disease risk. Is there something that people can do to, to take on that diet? Like how do how do you do that if you want to go vegan? Because I know a lot of people like to be vegan, but in order mm-hmm. to get all those fats and, and, and yeah. the, especially low carbohydrate. Well, so I think that. First of all, for anyone doing any diet, like whether it's a, a, a vegan diet um, or a like ketogenic high fat diet or a low carb high fat diet, whatever diet they're doing, first thing you should do is definitely measure these biomarkers. LDL particle size can be measured, triglycerides, inflammatory biomarkers like high sensitivity C reactive protein. Where would someone go to do that? Like, what's a good place to go? Um, True Health Diagnostics. I mean, I don't. You you can ask your your primary care doctor. Um, I know Truth, True Health uh, Diagnostics is one that does like a whole panel of really good ones, including the, the small dense LDL particle size. Um, a growing number of physicians do measure uh, LDL particle size. Wellness FX is something if you don't want your physician to know what your LDL is because you don't want them to like have some opinion about it. Wellness FX is a, a company that uh, will also measure your LDL and particle size and a variety of other biomarkers. Uh, as well. Now, what you're saying about um, refined carbohydrates or refined uh, sugars and LDL and uh, small LDL and lar- large LDL, is this common knowledge amongst primary care providers? I mean, is this something your doctor's going to understand or are they going to try to put you on statins? It's, it is not ubiquitous. It's not standard of care and it's not ubiquitous, ubiquitous in, in, in the medical profession yet because it's just within the past decade been starting to, um, scientists and researchers have been starting to uncover the, these mechanisms. And it usually takes a long time to translate this knowledge because now large scale clinical trials have to be done and X number of them have to be done. A lot of, I don't know everything that goes into how regulations are made, but it's a lot of, it's a lot of clinical trials and a lot of things before any sort of, you know, regulations are changed. So that's something that is not standard yet. Um, you can always print out papers uh, and give them to your physician. I interviewed a, gu- a guy on my podcast. He's a cardiologist, um, an MD. His name is Dr. Ronald Krauss. He's actually the guy who pi- pioneered the test to measure small, dense LDL particle size. And he's um, really been a leader in the field for understanding the role of small, dense LDL particles in cardiovascular disease risk and, and how basically a person with high, high LDL total cholesterol may not actually be at risk for heart disease uh, unless you look at the actual particle size. And, and things like this is what confound the literature because you can, and this is what people often refer to as cherry picking. It's kind of a pet peeve of mine. I hate when people say that because it's like anyone could do that. I feel like really the response that someone should say is look at the totality of the data, look at the clinical trials, look at the observational studies, look at mechanism, look at everything and get the picture. Like that's 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 the way you should you know, approach nutrition science. So, um, you know, he's really been a leader in looking at all that. But I kind of didn't answer your question about the people that are vegan want to go yeah. eat, eat more of a, um, a high fat, low carb sort of diet or even a ketogenic diet. Right. You know, so that's that's something that their vegans are interested in doing as well. And, you know, I've never I personally um, because of my APOE uh background. And by the way, that's kind of what motivated me to get, I got super into this field called nutrigenomics, the interaction between genes and diet, because I found out I had this allele and I knew there were sorts of risk. And I'm like, there's, there's absolutely things you can do in your diet and your lifestyle to modify that disease risk. And so that's something that I'm, you know, really interested in. 
Um, and people can actually, you, know, you can measure your DNA, but the DNA doesn't tell you everything. You have to measure blood biomarkers. Like the blood biomarkers are really key to know how, if a diet's working for you or not. And if it's not working for you, like I've had people emailing me, they've used, I have a genetic tool that people can use. And if they want to look at APOE4, or PPR gamma, those are like free reports. They've, they've tried a ketogenic diet and it was like awful for them. Their inflammatory biomarkers went up. Their small, dense LDL particle went up. All this stuff bad happened. And then they'd use the tool and found out they had, for example, the PPAR alpha gene, which is a gene that's key for the process of ketogenesis, producing ketone bodies from, you know, from oxidizing fatty acids. And and people that have a certain one don't do it very well. And like the diet can be detrimental. Like it can it can do more harm. That's critical because, uh, you know, first of all, I've been uh, irresponsibly telling people to do that, too. Like I, th- I the ketogenic res- diet, I responded very well to mm-hmm. it. So I've been telling people to get on that or, right. or at least try it. So for what is exactly the gene? What is the issue? So there. So PPAR alpha, mm-hmm. um, it changes. It's, it's, it's a gene that's involved in it's involved in fatty acid metabolism, absorption of fatty acids. Um, it's also it's in the in the liver involved in producing ketone bodies from from the fatty acid so that specific gene is essential for the the process of ketogenesis during a fasted state and also if you're doing you know a, a ketogenic type of diet and so a certain um, there's certain variations in that gene that don't do it very well and so the high fat diet what ends up happening is uh, you're not you're not metabolizing the fatty acids and producing the ketone bodies quite as well, and so you end up having more free fatty acids floating around in your bloodstream, which can antagonize insulin receptor and make you more insulin insensitive, which is exactly the opposite of what ketogenic diets usually do. You know, so there's this varied response. You can also um, have more inflammatory biomarkers uh, for various reasons as well, because you're not oxidizing the fatty acids and producing the ketone bodies as well. So there's lots of things that change, but like. You know, knowing the genes is one component. I think I think that you have to measure the biomarkers first. And once you, if you're doing something like a ketogenic diet, for example, then you would measure all your lipid particle sizes, your triglycerides, inflammatory biomarkers. You want to measure HbA1c, which is um, your glycated hemoglobin, which is a marker of sort of your long-term blood glucose levels. Like so you should you have one test initially, like a baseline test Definitely. before you enter into the diet yes. and then have a second exactly. one? Exactly. Yeah, that's and really key. Do you think that the origins of this is your ancestral origins, like what your your ancestors' diet consisted of, low-fat, yeah. high-carbohydrate diet? I think that's what yeah. I was kind of getting at at first. I mean, that's the theory at least, right? Like we don't, mm-hmm. we can't prove that, but, but there are scientists looking at like different region, like people that live, for example, in Northern Europe, how they eat more fat and they're able to do that better. And right. so there are scientists that are investigating that because it's interesting to know why, uh, why that is. But yeah, that's, that's the thing that's, it's, and I think it really explains a lot, like with the ketogenic diet, um, there's, it's something that I've become really interested in recently because I've been, you know, following the, the field and it, it appears, you know, as though there is a really, um, there's something about it that is really important for the way your mitochondria age. Like it really seems to help your mitochondria age better. Mm. And I think that there's, you know, there's multiple, I talked to a, a, a sort of an expert, he's the president of the Buck Institute for Research on Aging. Um, and he, his name is uh, Eric Verdon, and he just recently published a really big paper showing that in animals, cyclic ketogenic diets could extend their health span. So they are basically healthy part of the life they were living they were living longer and they were living better, and it, and also their memory was like dramatically improved. And when you say cyclic, is there a, a specific uh, range that you're cycling? Yeah. So that and and this is like I had all these questions for him that I that I asked him about. Um, and the cyclic, so it was 
every other week. So one week they were ketogenic, the next week they were just getting normal normal chow diet and then ketogenic. So they were cycling every other week. And the reason for that is because for whatever reason, um, animals, when they just when you just give them food to eat, like like ad libdom, like whenever they want, even if it's ketogenic, they'll just they'll keep eating. Like they'll just keep eating it, like and and they can become it can become an obesogenic diet where they're where they become fat and it can actually decrease their lifespan, even though it's ketogenic. And I think that's partly because fatty acids, um, in order to use them, they have to get inside the mitochondria to be used and as energy. And if they don't get inside the mitochondria, then they just get taken up into adipose tissue and stored as fat. And fatty acids themselves will, when the levels are high enough, shut that transport system that does that off. So it's like a negative regulator. So if you just keep on bombarding the body with fat, 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 like nonstop without a rest, then you start to like not be able to use those fatty acids because it inhibits the transport system. It's called the carnitol palmitol transferase for those nerd, nerdy biologist geeks out there. Um, that, that, you know, so anyways, I totally digress there. No, but, it's um, good. It's, um, uh, yeah, the cyclokinogenic diet. So that, that was something that extended their health span and I became very interested in that. And so the thing that's super interesting, and as I was talking to um, Dr. Bredin about this, is that, you know, there's a couple of things. One, obviously, you're not getting a lot of uh, blood glucose hits all the time, right? When, for the most part, if you don't have gene polymorphisms that are changing the way you process saturated fat, right? So you're not, you're, you're, your insulin response is not happening quite as often. That's lowered. And there's, there's, there's benefits with, from that alone, right? But for someone like me that doesn't eat refined sugar, doesn't eat any refined carbohydrates, I mean, all of my carbohydrates come from leafy greens or, or vegetables and, you know, berries and some 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 other fruits, um, you know, so, and, and my blood glucose levels have always been pretty, pretty good, like, you know, fasting blood glucose and all that, um, with the exception of my lack of sleep recently, and, you know, but... So the question I wanted to know was like, okay, well, what else is going on? And it seems as though the production of the major circulating ketone body, beta-hydroxybutyrate, really is having an anti-aging role. And, you know, Dr. Verdin's work showed that it, it's, it's changing the expression of genes and it's like activating longevity genes and all this. But the thing that's super, super interesting to me is that the way it's metabolized by mitochondria is different than other energy sources. And without getting too much into chemistry, it's, it's not, um, in order to, to produce energy, you have to use something called electron reducing equ equivalents and they can be in the form of NAD, NADH ratio or FAD um, to H. And so it's not going through one of those pathways that generates more free radicals and more basically leaky electrons that can damage mitochondria. It doesn't go through that pathway like other energy sources. So it's like you end up net not, not, you know, basically having lower lower inflammatory and lower oxidative damage to your mitochondria. It also doesn't have what's called protonophoric activity. So it's almost like the way your body, your mitochondria is metabolizing it is better. Because metabolism, you're constantly generating damage, like damage constantly right now all the time. It's, you're just from normal metabolism. And it seems as though there's something about that beta-hydroxybutyrate that's superior, and it's 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 definitely got me super interested in it. And you know, for for like the longest time, I was thinking, well, I'll get my beta hydroxybutyrate by doing um, time restricted eating, right? Where I'm eating all my food within like ten hours, yeah. And then I'm I'm fasting for fourteen hours, and I'm 
you know, depending on how acti- what your activity levels are and all that, how quickly you deplete your liver, liver glycogen, you can start to make beta-hydroxybutyrate even within like seven hours if you're really active. You know, so I was like, well, I'm getting my beta, beta-hydroxybutyrate from the fasting part of the time-restricted eating, right? But I've become super interested in, in this possible even – because there's other reasons I don't eat a ketogenic diet. I like to get all the micronutrients. I like to get prebiotic fiber. You know, that's really good for the gut microbiome. But then again, I don't, we don't know exactly how ketogenic diet's even affecting the microbiome. So that's sort of still an open, you know, open field. So I, I'm sort of thinking, can I do some sort of cyclic, you know, ketogenic diet? And also for me, because I have ApoE4, I do eat saturated fat, but I eat it from like whole foods. I don't like I used to do a lot of cooking with coconut oil, which is high in saturated fat. And I'm like, what do I need to do that for? Like, I don't really need to cook with coconut oil. I can use avocado oil, you know. And so I changed that. And my LDL just dropped 20 points from just that alone. You know, hmm. so it's like and, and but LDL right, overall, my, not large versus small. Yeah, my LDL overall the first time. So my baseline, I didn't measure small dense. So I don't know what my baseline was, hmm. but I did measure the large. So the large. And like I said, the large can transform into the small dense, and so <coughs> with with refined sugars. With refined sugars, that's what's known. But y- like you mentioned, genetics, there may be something that we don't know. What What is the mechanism for the transference of a lo- L- the the sugar with the LDL? Like what 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 causes it to become small dense? I'm not sure we entirely understand that yet, just because but we know there's a correlation. There definitely a correlation, and there ha- and it has been showed in clinical studies to, to not just be correlation, but causal, where you give people refined sugar and they're they're small dense. Causal, yeah. So same diet, same diet, adding refined sugar, you see a radical difference. You measure their small dense LDL before giving them the refined sugar, same diet, and then you measure after this the soda, you know, blast of refined sugar for three weeks, and their small dense LDL particles going through the roof. So, so that's causal because you're giving them something, you're measuring it before and after effect. And if there's anything that we can conclusively point to, it's that refined sugar is absolutely bad for you. There's no doubt about that, right? I, I think so. I think that, you know, there's so many studies that have shown, you know, the inflammatory biomarkers go up, your small dense LDL biomarkers go up. There's correlation studies showing that people that eat refined sugar have like telomeres, which are a biomarker for aging that look 10 years older you know, even though people, they're the same chronological age as other people that don't eat the refined sugar. There's studies in men where, like, they give men 75 grams of refined sugar and their testosterone drops by 25%. I mean, it's changing a lot of things, um, you know, in the body in a, in a negative way. Well, mine, my testosterone doubled when I changed my diet. When I cut out the pasta, when I cut out the bread, and I started eating more saturated fat, more protein, and I, I went to the ketogenic diet, mm-hmm. literally it doubled. Wow. Like doing everything exactly the same. It's, it was stunning. And I felt different. Like I could right. feel the difference. Feel the difference in my energy levels. Feel the difference cognitively. The cognitive thing was a big thing. And I attributed it to cutting out refined sugars and refined carbohydrates. I, yeah. think, I think that stuff's poison. Uh, well, there's been studies showing it also affects your brain in a negative way as well. And people that eat refined sugar, you know, there's, there's more brain atrophy. I mean, there's lots of correlations. The one thing I will say is that, you know, there are people that are super physically active and they're like working out two hours a day. And, you know, right. those guys, they'll use refined sugar Different to like, yeah, to, you know, they're, they're increased transport, you know, glucose transport in their muscles and they're using it as an anabolic way to like get bigger muscle. And yeah, I know guys who do that after they work out, they eat candy. Yeah. I mean, and, and it, it's not like it's, it's, you can't compare like 
people that aren't working out like two hours a day or right. you know like that to, to normal people Especially or even sedentary people weightlifters yeah weightlifters Pe- people that are just ripping their body apart there i mean there's a lot of savages out there that are doing crazy power lifting workouts and benching and squatting and i know a lot of guys who like to eat candy afterwards right yeah no it's it's certainly you know i think that those people you know it they're they're not it's not it's not acting the same way. It's a radically you know? different requirement that their body needs right. in terms of glucose. Right. And yeah. and the thing is, I mean still it's like the way I think about it is it's not really nutrient dense. You know, I right. like to like I'm like, well, there's lots of there's Fruit. reasons yeah, there's a yeah. reason why I like to like take and if you want the sugar then you know eat I would, a, eat an orange. Right. Yeah. Or or an apple or something like that. Yeah, you should you it's know? probably the better move than eating candy. But I think they just want a ton of it. And what is the what's the anabolic factor? Like if you were gonna eat candy or something like that has a bunch of refined sugar after like an intense work out what would be the anabolic factor well the glucose so the the workout causes um glucose transporters that transport glucose to like go through the roof and so you start the glucose from your your bloodstream gets like sucked into the muscle and then in the muscle you know you're you're basically you can you can use that as 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 a way to 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 have insulin and it can be anabolic right where where whereas if you weren't doing that then the the glucose is in your bloodstream and it can all sorts of Small dense LDL particles can start to form because the inflammatory transformations that happen and things like that. Um, that's at least my understanding. That's in combination, of course, with um, amino acids, which are also important for the growth of the protein and muscle. But um, that's my understanding of it. I think. So, like in general, though, if someone could cut one thing out of their diet, refined carbohydrates and refined sugars would be a great way to go. I think the one, if you were to think about the one easiest thing that you could do that would have the biggest impact on your health. And if you're talking, if we're talking about, we're not talking about someone who's already paleo or someone like you or I, we're talking about like standard American person. Yes. The one thing that they could do to have the biggest impact on their health, I would say is to cut out refined sugar. Like that's, that's probably the biggest thing, the easiest thing. I mean, I don't know how easy it is. It, you know, it can be addicting. Very, very addictive. Yeah, and that's been shown. Dopamine levels, you know, can get activated in that. And whole... also your gut biome, correct? Right. Your your gut biome literally has an impact on what you desire. Right. Yeah. It, it does. So your your the the thing about your microbiome and your gut is that like, you know, the 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 microbiome eats. It's at the distal part of your gut, so it's in the colon, right? The large intestine, the very end of the large intestine is where most of the trillions of bacteria are. And those bacteria actually eat the fermentable fiber that we don't digest, we don't, we don't process. And the fermentable fiber comes from a variety of um, plants, from, from plants and from seeds and nuts and you know, um, legumes as well, uh, oats. You know, so there's different types of fermentable fiber that are found in different types of foods and they feed different species of bacteria. Well, when you don't get enough of that fermentable fiber, what ends up happening, in fact, there's been studies showing that like 75% of the microbiome population changes and like when, when you don't get at all any fiber. And what happens, a couple of things. One is those, mic- those bacteria species, they start to eat um, the carbohydrate that's lining your gut called mucin, which is what makes up the gut barrier that separates the immune cells in your gut from the bacteria. They start to eat it because it's carbohydrate. And so you actually start to break down your gut barrier just from that. The second thing that happens is what you mentioned is that a lot of the pathogenic bacteria will swim up to the small intestine where they're usually not supposed to be. Small intestine is where you absorb uh, sugar, protein, fats. They swim up there and guess what? 
sugar. Right. <laughs> they start so they start to like eat the sugar and they start to multiply. And the thing about having bacteria in the small intestine where it's not supposed to be is that it causes the same response that that eating gluten causes, where it basically those those it's called small bacteria intestinal gro- overgrowth. And what happens is that the tight junctions that make up the gut barrier start to open up and open up. And that allows the inflammatory um, immune cells to be in contact with bacteria. And then, of course, the immune cells go, oh, bacteria. And they start to, like, try to kill it because they think that's not supposed to be there. It could be potentially harmful pathogenic bacteria. And so that starts to set off an immune response, inflammatory immune response. And the more you have, the more sugar you eat, the more your this this population of bacteria is flourishing. So, so that's like that's another thing that's that's um, that's changing that. But it's also the one of the reasons, like I was saying, you know, with um, and I've never actually tried a ketogenic diet, but um, because you know for various reasons. But I, I I'm not sure how much plants you eat like what like can you eat like a good amount of can you get like some it really depends on the individual you know, uh, you know on a very small scale uh rob wolf and his wife have done some pretty interesting tests where they'll both eat the same thing and they'll both test themselves uh he'll test the both of them you know x amount of minutes later and they have a radically different response between right. the two of them it's really interesting <laughs> like his wife is much more resilient and he has much more of a difficult time getting back into ketosis it's re- it's really he's he's documented a lot of it on his um his Instagram page, but I think it speaks to what you were talking about before, that it really depends on where your ancestors evolved. And it really has, there's different, we, we vary biologically so much. Right. We do. And, and that's, that, that, you know, affects how we respond to these foods and all that, you know, but, um, anyways, uh, what was the other thing I wanted to ask you about? Oh, the NAD. Do you remember the NAD? I was talking about like the NAD and NADH ratio and yes. NAD. So this is something. Um, what does NAD stand for again? Nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, and it's something. It's something that um, it's kind of in a way similar to ATP, where it's like used as an energetic currency throughout the body for 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 various things. But it's actually like required to like for your metabolism. Like you need it to metabolize you know, fatty acids and glucose and, you know, amino acids. But you also, you need it to um, repair damage. You need it, you know, for a variety of of other things that are happening. Um, And the thing is, is that these NAD levels in in tissues that are very uh, energetically demanding, they deplete. So, for example, if your immune, if you have chronic inflammation and your immune system is chronically being activated, the NAD levels are going to that and it's kind of like triaging. And so, what happens is your metabolism suffers. And it's been shown now um, that NAD levels in like, you know, multiple tissues um, with age, they deplete. Lots of preclinical studies have shown um, that, you know, plays a role in the aging process. And if you, for example, take like a mouse that has progeria, this pro-aging phenotype, and then you give them the NAD, it like can like basically kind of rescue that in a way and they like live a more normal health span and more normal lifespan. So it's like, and there's lots of studies showing that in various ways. There's recently been a lot of interest in it because the NAD, um, there's a way to replenish it through supplemental form called nicotinamide riboside. So NAD is actually formed from vitamin B3, like nicotinic acid or uh, nicotinamide, um, or from tryptophan. 
But nicotinamide riboside is um, another precursor that you can take in supplemental form. And there's been you know, studies over the past few years looking at how in animals it's been able to increase NAD levels. It's able to like basically improve physical performance, cognitive performance. It's able to you know, make your tissues age better, your organs age better in, in, in animals. So um, now there's like been preclinical trials that are, sorry, clinical trials that have been um, under, undergoing, one showing um, that you actually can take the supplemental form of NAD, nicotinamide riboside, and you can increase your NAD levels in a dose-dependent manner. So it's a study that just came out recently. And there's now, um, um, there's now like 10 clinical trials that, have been under, that are undergoing right now looking at the role of supplemental nicotinamide, nicotinamide riboside in uh, dementia, in obesity, um, traumatic brain injury is another one, and then some other type of metabolic uh, dysfunction. So that the, these are currently, you know, being investigated in humans. So the NAD thing is another real big interest of mine. Um, I did buy the supplement, but I'm not taking it right now because I'm breastfeeding and I'm just not sure how that, mm. you know, how that goes. But uh, you were asking me about the the IV stuff. I think that's something that is now popular everywhere. I've looked I've looked it up. It's like it's becoming really popular, but the thing is is that there's really no clinical evidence of it. You know, of like if you if you intravenously take NAD, like is that going to have the same effect that, you know, taking nicotinamide riboside does? Does it get into your cells? So it's an open question, but it seems it seems like people are um getting results. You know, obviously it's all anecdotal. Yeah, I mean, have it, you ever done anything IV? Have you ever done like IV vitamin infusions or anything, anything like that? No. Yeah, no, I, I haven't. I haven't either. I haven't done anything that. It's always uh, I look at it. I go, ooh, what if that's good? What? Right. I mean, <laughs> but I don't want to sit there and have vitamins pumped into my veins for nothing. I've had people. I've had people tell me the like great things about doing the NAD. Uh, NAD plus is what it's actually called. But um, I've never actually, I've never tried that. And I think before I would do something like that, I would probably try the nicotinamide riboside, which we know for the fact does increase, you know, NAD levels and multiple tissues. And it, it, it would be nice to have some of these clinics that are doing it, like aggregate the data and publish it because no one's going to fund this study. Like people aren't studying that, you know, so there's no way to really know if it's placebo or really, right. you know, because there's no data. Yeah. So it'd be, it'd be kind of nice if like people would start to aggregate data on that, but well, you know, it's it's really interesting when it comes to data, when it comes to diet, because, you know, the the whole throw the baby out with the bath, bath water thing. One of the, the studies that I read pretty recently was about um, the amount of people that suffered ill health consequences that ate red meat five days per week uh, versus people who didn't. But what they didn't take into account was what the people ate with the red meat. Whether right. they drank soda, whether what, how did you get your form of red meat? Was it grass-fed beef? Was it bison or wild game? Or was it a burger from Wendy's with fries and a sugar bun and all the, the, the bullshit that people eat along with the food? And that you, you literally, and people would cite these things as being evidence that something is negative for you, that red meat is negative for you. But you're not taking into consideration all the things that were eaten with that red meat. So these studies that come out like that, they're so they're, – they're really annoying because it's like you have to you, – you, you talk to people about it. And you have to like sit down with them. Okay, sit down. <sighs> okay. This is a long process yeah. like the, to, to try to try, try to figure out what is the cause of these issues. You're talking about a lifetime of abuse. 
you're talking about like all sorts of different health consequences of a variety of different foods, and you're attributing it all to one part of your diet. And that's very difficult to do unless you, you've isolated everything else and done a bunch of different studies where, okay, I ate nothing but fruits and vegetables, and I ate really healthy, and I ate red meat five days a week. Or I ate nothing but shit and fries and buns and pasta, and I didn't eat red meat at all. And now here's the results. Right. It, you're making a really good point, and that is the, the combination of how these different foods are interacting in our bodies extremely important. Like we talked about the refined sugar and saturated fat combo. Well, you know, the 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 red meat and even just, you know, protein like itself, like, you know, essential amino acids that are coming from animal protein itself and how that is interacting with, you know, eating eating a terrible diet like refined sugar, which is causing damage to our cells, you know, also exercise. And this is something really um the, the, the protein uh, exercise thing seems to be really key, but there was a, a recent study that was published that was the largest study, observational study done so far looking at um, protein intake and all-cause mortality and cancer mortality. And it found, like a lot of other studies, that higher protein consumption, um, higher meat, protein consumption from meat was associated with a higher all-cause mortality and a higher cancer mortality. But then when the data was sub-analyzed and, and, and other unhealthy style factors were looked at, so, so um, if, if someone had one other unhealthy lifestyle factor being either obesity, smoking, excessive alcohol co- consumption, or being sedentary, then they had a higher, they were, had a higher all-cause mortality and a higher cancer mortality if they ate meat. But guess what? If they had zero None of those other unhealthy lifestyle factors, they didn't have, they had the same all-cause mortality and cancer-related mortality that the non-meat eaters had. So I think that really highlights the importance of other lifestyle factors, other foods, you know, that's really important when we're, when we're looking at these observational studies. When you were talking about saturated fat um, and the negative consequences of eating refined sugar with saturated fat, is there a negative, um, a corresponding negative consequence? Like if you had, uh, if you had negative or if you had um, a, a, a diet that didn't have any saturated fat in it, but you ate refined sugar, like say if you uh, eat a vegan diet, does saturated fa- or does um, refined sugar have less of an impact? Of eating, so so the refined sugar because the LDL, it's, right. it's an issue with yes. fat. Yeah, it. I think it. Yes. So the LDL will go down if you're eating a vegan diet, diet, and even though you're still eating cookies or some whatever vegan stuff you so know refined sugar is probably like less dangerous to someone on a vegan diet is that yes i think so and and the thing the thing with that is is that if you look at but if you look at refined sugar also refined sugar is associated with heart disease risk in fact it's like one of the you know, there was a big big study like four hundred thousand different individuals looked at refined sugar people that had the highest refined sugar intake but again saturated fats a confounding factor there right had like a four times higher risk of getting having a heart attack but it's it's perfect you you illustrated it perfectly and that is and that's where i think a lot of these guidelines like the american heart association come from if you on a population level if you say to someone reduce your saturated fat intake you're going to lower the ldl risk and regardless of all the other stuff they're doing you know it it probably will on a population level lower their heart disease risk but on an individual level like someone like you and i we don't eat all that other stuff. You know, we we're very health you know conscious and do all these things. You and I, if we stopped our saturated fat intake, likely, you know, well, for me, I guess my genes are a little different, but likely wouldn't have the same effect. 
So if you were to take that same population of people and say, okay, eat your saturated fat, but take out the refined sugar, we may see the same thing where the, L, where the heart disease risk goes down just like it does when, with saturated fat. In fact, there have been studies where um, replacement foods have, done, you know, have looked at um, replacement foods for saturated fat. And if you replace saturated fat with refined sugar, it does not um, lower the risk of uh, heart disease. So basically, that's, that's kind of a, a proof of principle there. But I do think that it's, it's, a, it's an important point, and it's something that the American Heart Association, they're, they're now starting to at least mention the small, dense LDL particles. So I think that moving in that direction is good because it means that possibly then, you know, over the next decade, we're going to start to see, okay, now we got to start. It's not just the LDL. I'm confused about something you just said. You said if you replace saturated fat with refined sugar. If you replace the saturated fat with refined sugar. If you sorry, refined carbohydrates, okay. which I, I usually think of as refined sugar, okay. but refined carbohydrates, um, it does not. So the the idea is, if saturated fat was so bad, mm-hmm. if you replaced, if you took the saturated fat and replaced it with a refined carbohydrate, it would lower the risk of mm-hmm. heart disease, and it do, it doesn't. Oh, okay. It doesn't lower the risk. Right. So, so basically, you so know, it's not the saturated fat. It's the saturated fat along with refined sugar that has some sort of a negative synergistic ref- effect. That's what that's what the data in aggregation, looking at the clinical trials, looking at the mechanism, looking at the observational studies, and and understanding the interaction of all these foods together. And the, the problem way they is when the American Heart Association puts out sort of a blanket statement like that, a lot of people take it as fact. And then what my research has shown, my reading rather, I shouldn't say research, I'm a dummy, but the, the people that I've read who have criticized this, that are actually scientists and researchers, they have a, a huge issue with that statement. Mm-hmm. They think that this is just, it's too simplistic. It's, it's not taking into account all the various nuances in genetics, diet, ancestry, all, all the different factors. But people read that and it's sort of like this cookie cutter approach and then they parrot it out to everybody else. Yeah, it's it's true. I mean, that's that's exactly what happens, and and the same thing goes with with the protein and it being bad as well. And there's all sorts of nuances in the combination of the protein with the with the bad diet and also the exercise, which is one of the one of the things with the with the protein is that it increases IGF one, and IGF one is a growth factor, and it can allow cells that are damaged that should otherwise die not die and so it can allow precancerous cells to form a tumor and that's we know that from mechanistic studies and you know that's that's kind of a big part of the 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 eating protein essential amino acids specifically are what does do do this and they're they're found in animal protein and that's sort of the big argument there but there's also this whole argument where if you are one exercising, the IGF one goes into your brain. It's been shown across the blood-brain barrier. It goes into your brain and also in your muscle, where it grows new neurons in the brain and actually repairs damaged muscle tissue and helps grow muscle tissue, which is also a predictor of, of all-cause mortality. So, you know, the ex- again, the exercise comes in there, and then also the fact that if you're eating a, a good diet and you're not you're not causing as much damage to happen in the first place then those growth factors being there aren't as big of a deal because you don't have you know, all these damaged cells from all this refined sugar you're eating that can basically become cancerous cells. So that's kind of, you know, with that study, the observational study that looked at people that were eating meat, if they didn't have any of those unhealthy lifestyle factors, guess what? Their all-cause mortality and cancer mortality was the same as the vegetarians. And I think that's kind of highlighting that, that, that issue, you know? Well, I have a friend who's a scientist who's talking to me about meat. He goes, meat is essentially amino acids, protein, and water. He's like, it's not going to cause you cancer. It's like, this is not what the problem is. He goes, you, you have some issues with the way it's cooked. 
So for sure, like things that are charred are not good for you. There's carcinogens, right? And, and the blackened, charred. Yeah. I mean, there's heterocyclic amines that can form when you cook meat at a really high temperature. And those are carcinogens. Um, and But our, body, our bodies have genes that are able to uh, inactivate those. Some bodies, but some not. People can do it to, to various levels. There's certain polymorphisms in genes that um, basically some people can detoxify it really well, and they're, they're called detoxification enzymes, and some people don't do it quite as well. And the people that don't do it quite as well probably shouldn't char their meat as much. Like, you shouldn't eat it, like, every day, like, charred. Right. But, but that's not the big issue isn't so much that as the, the IGF-1, which doesn't cause cancer, but it allows cancer cells to grow. See the difference? It's mm-hmm. like one is like, oh, you eat meat, it causes cancer. Well, no, right. that's not necessarily true. You eat a lot of meat and you don't exercise and you keep having IGF-1 around and you have all these other damaged cells because you're eating all this other crap, which is causing damage. Then you're allowing the IGF-1 you know, to allow those damaged cells to grow. So one is like a promoting where it's promoting the growth of cancer and the other one's saying it causes. So it doesn't cause in that sense. Now, in the carcinogen, you know, in the, if you're getting a, a ton of carcinogens, and, and plus, there's um, studies showing that eating um, cruciferous vegetables, the isothiocyanates, in people that have that gene polymorphism that don't detoxify the heterocyclic amines as well, if they eat a, a diet high in, in cruciferous vegetables and they have isothiocyanates, it, they also inactivate those, those uh, pro-carcinogens. And so what are those normalizes, vegetables? Uh, broccoli sprouts. Um, oh. Uh, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, Brussels sprouts. You alone sprouts. jacked up the broccoli sprouts <laughs> industry the last time you were on. It, it's amazing. I've had people emailing me that like they're either them themselves or their father or someone they're taking care of. Their prostate cancer biomarker, the prostate stimulating antigen, has like gone down like twofold after doing the broccoli sprouts every day for X amount of time. Wow. Which is something I, we talked about because yeah. it's clinical. Clinical trials have shown that it's. It's very powerful. Now, when you um, when you look at animal protein, uh, and I'm including fish in this for this, um, is there any benefit to a specific type? Like um, uh, someone was telling me that red meat is better for you than chicken, and I was like, "Well, how do you know?" And they're like, "Well, it's how it makes me feel." And I said, "Okay, well, that doesn't seem to make much sense. Like, what is? But is there a difference? I mean, obviously, there's a difference in the protein content, like of some meats." Um, like wild game has a much higher protein content than, say, domestic beef. But when you think like fish, like is there is is are living animals all created equal? That's the question. Well, of course, there's lots of differences. I mean, if you you know the 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 protein, the amino acid makeup are different, and I'm not an expert on that, so I can't tell you all the differences there. But there's differences in in the micronutrient concentrations. I mean, omega three fatty acids are in fish. A lot of irons in in red meat. So there's difference. You know, different zinc. You know, iron, selenium, omega three fatty acids—all these different things are are found in different concentrations in different types of meat. And you know, so for that reason, it's kind of good to eat a diverse array of different types because you're getting, you know, twenty two percent of all your enzymes in your body require a micronutrient as a cofactor to work. You know, and the omega three fatty acids are important. You know, really important for the brain, hugely important. You know, for the brain. So, I think that in that respect, you know, the, there are obviously differences. Um, in, in terms of the different types of meat that you're you're eating, right? I mean, right. So so yeah, but um, and then the ratio of the proteins are different. I don't I don't know exactly how what what those differences are, but you know, there's that affects things as well. So do you think like a healthy approach if someone does eat meat is to eat a little bit of everything, like a little bit of salmon, maybe a little bit of red meat, a little bit of bison, a little bit of chicken. 
I I think that's the approach I like to take because I like to I like to look at things in terms of nutrient quality and why am I why am I eating this food? Oh, I'm eating this food because I want this type of amino acid profile. I want these micronutrients. You know, I I want um, either this type of prebiotic fiber or not. And, you know, so I kind of look at it as these like nutrient delivery vesicles that I'm like taking in. Mm. And, and that's that's the, the approach I like. I, you know, I it's I'm a little biased because I've I've been doing a lot of research on micronutrients. And so I, you know, I know how important they are. And I've and I've I've studied even in people things like biomarkers of aging, like DNA damage and seen how they change with different micronutrient intakes or different types of fiber intakes or, you know, things like that. So, so I, you know, for me, I kind of, um, I'm a little biased in that sense, but I'm, you know, it's, it's the approach that I like to take, you know, for example, this is a, a really good story. My, my mentor, Bruce Ames, Bruce Ames, who I talk about a lot, he was the inventor of the Ames test, which is a, a test, a really cheap test that you can do to, to determine whether or not something's a carcinogen. In fact, I'm sure the heterocyclic amines were determined from his test because mm. you can dump something on and he can bas- it basically can tell you like in a matter of minutes, right? So he's, that was his like, he he was um, pioneered that back in like the late 70s, early 80s, and he was responsible for getting carcinogens out of hair dye, women's hair dyes, out of children's pajamas, lots of lots of really big health impacts that he what, had. What's in pajamas? Um, there was some kind of polyurethane-ish thing. I don't remember exactly. It's not there anymore, but it was. And it was it was to prevent them from. It was a flame retardant. Oh. It was a flame retardant, and it was it was completely a carcinogen, and it was ending up in children's urine and stuff. They were measuring oh. it. Yeah. So anyways, my, my point is, is that he used to be in this whole like cancer, chemical carcinogen field. And then one day, like, you know, someone in his lab did, lab did an experiment where they like left folate out of the sample and there was like massive amounts of DNA damage happening. He's like, what's going on here? And they started to do this in, in mice and found um, that like a low folate diet, diet caused damage to DNA the same as being irradiated by an Whoa. x-ray machine, the exact same. And then he went into people and found, you know, there, there was like an, a really small exper- pilot experiment, but similar that, that it caused DNA damage on people that had a low folate diet. And he said that one experiment right there changed the whole course of his field of study, where he all of a sudden went into nutrition and micronutrients. And that became his thing from the 80s on. And kind of from an accident. Yeah, from an accident. Doesn't that happen all the time in labs? All the time. It's the best stuff. It was funny because the guy in his lab was like calling. He was trying to figure out what is going on here. And then he he looked. His assistant had ordered this media that you put on cells. And he looked at the media, tried to figure out what was in it. And they saw it was a specific type of media that the assistant had ordered incorrectly that lacked folate. And so this whole thing was all started from that. And That's so incredible. Yeah. So he published that seminal paper where literally he compared mice being irradiated under an x-ray machine to low folate and it was identical now would that be something that people should take into their diet of say if they are uh flight attendants or pilots because don't they isn't like flying like a a form of radiation you do get some radiation that's similar to an x-ray right yeah i mean that's it the folate it's a different mechanism by how it's preventing it basically folate is needed to to make a actual precursor to DNA. And without that precursor, you don't make the DNA right and you incorporate a nucleotide from RNA into it. And so you basically make a break in your DNA strand. Uh-huh. But um, but DNA damage is, yeah, is something that happens with, with you know, pilots and astronauts and things like that. And, um, and that's you know, been measured? 
Uh, yeah, it's been measured. In Do fact, they... there was a really weird study that came out recently that astronauts, um, they had like exceptionally longer telomeres than, Whoa. yeah, where it's like it was totally counterintuitive where DNA damage usually causes telomeres to get shorter. And so like if you were to have asked me, I would have predicted that it, the astronauts would have had shorter telomeres. So there's definitely some weird stuff going on we don't understand, you know, but um, and there's obviously a variety of other things you can do to protect yourself from that. But I forgot why. I went. The whole point is that the micronutrients were important. Um, Bruce Ames is, has been my mentor and friend for many years, and and I've sort of been in this field of study for for a while. And so it's 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 how I think about food. And it doesn't mean it's the best way, but it's the way that I've convinced myself so far with the tools that I have available to me that that's how I like to eat. Um, and again, anyone that's doing any sort of diet should always measure biomarkers and things like that to know if it's working for them. And what's a good source of folate? Leafy greens. In fact, my Bruce's mentor when he was a graduate student is the guy who identified, he actually discovered folate by identify, um, isolating it from spinach. Ah. So spinach, um, yeah, leafy greens are a great source of folate. Um, but the leafy green, like the other thing that gets me on this, and I know I talked about this last time, was like other compounds that are in the in the plants where we're sort of just scratching the surface on understanding them, like what they're doing in our bodies. Like one, for example, is lutein. It's present in leafy greens. Kale is a really, really great source of it. Lutein is like, it's found in the, first of all, it was known that lutein is important for the rods and cones in your eye. And so people like, they'll take supplements with lutein to help with their vision. But all this recent research over the last few years has found is like accumulating in large amounts in the brain. Like what is lutein doing in the human brain? Well, it turns out it's like there's been clinical studies now, controlled trials, like giving people lutein, and 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 it's it plays a role in in cognition. Like people have better learning and memory scores after taking lutein. Um, it's involved in, um, uh, in crystallized intelligence, which decreases with age. You know, so there's like there's things like that. Another one is um, this one that I'm really interested in now. I'm actually supplementing it with PQQ. Mm. And that one is, it's made by bacteria and bacteria in the soil. So it's made by bacteria because it's important for, um, it's a cofactor for enzymes, for their metabolic enzymes to work. Well, plants take it up from soil and then we take, eat the plants and get in our diet. And um, it's, it's been shown now in like in a few studies, lots and lots of preclinical studies, it's been shown to like regulate mitochondrial function, improve mitochondrial function. Clinical, a couple of clinical trials now have been done looking at how it affects humans. If you supplement with like 20 megs a day, improves cognition. It also improves markers of mitochondrial function, um, lowers markers of uh, inflammation. Well, it turns out PQQ has like 20,000 times the catalytic activity um, than something like ascorbic acid. So it's a really powerful antioxidant. And what I mean by that is, so ascorbic acid goes through um, cycles of vitamin C, it's it's either oxidized or reduced. And it can it when it when it when it does its antioxidant thing, it becomes oxidized. And it can do that four times where it goes, it donates, you know, it donates this this hydrogen and you know help it helps to, you know, basically um, combat reoc- uh, oxidative stress, but then it gets oxidized again and it can do it again four times. PQQ does it twenty thousand times. Like isn't that mind blowing? Twenty thousand times. And it's really concentrated in breast milk. So I'm actually wow. taking it right now. It's it's super interesting. So that seems, seems like something that everyone should supplement. I think maybe so. <laughs> I'm <laughs> hesitant. Like, yeah, yeah. Because you know, I you know you never really know. But I, I'm I'm supplementing with it, and and 
uh, I certainly don't notice anything because like sometimes those those sorts of changes are really hard to to measure um, and especially you have to wait until I mean who knows like later on in life but it I think it may be something that's important uh, that maybe uh, has beneficial effects in in humans as well so and I, like again you can you get it from plants but 20 milligrams a day is what I'm taking because that's what the two different clinical trials have shown. What's the best plant source of it? I don't know what the best. I'm, I'm sure you could find that uh, on Google. But because various various plants take it up from the soil. So probably things that are growing in the soil, right? That would mm, be the, yeah. the best. Um, but yeah, it's like it's found like five or six fold higher in higher levels than it is in our tissues and plants, of course, because the plants are the source of it. Um, but But yeah, taking a supplemental form, you'll be getting orders of magnitude more. Do you have a supplement company that you rely on the most? I, I do. So the thing with supplements is that there's they're really risky. Uh, there's lots of studies that have been published showing that a lot of supplements don't contain what they say they contain right. or they contain a fraction of it. And they got a bunch of other filler like Cloverleaf and stuff. So um, one of the supplement companies So and, and there's a scientist friend of mine. His name is Dr. Jed Fahey. He's like he's a guy who discovered um, that broccoli sprouts are the best source of sulforaphane. He um, he measured a variety of supplements, and, and he was looking specifically at like precursors to sulforaphane. And uh, he looked at a variety of different companies, and one of the companies that was just um, really, really, really good and reliable was Thorn, Thorn T H O R N E, mm-hmm. and that's something um, I don't have any affiliation with them or anything. But that yeah. I always they're my go-to brand whenever I'm looking for a supplement. Like I took I took their prenatal from throughout pregnancy. Um, actually, I'm still taking the prenatal while I'm breastfeeding. I take their vitamin D and vitamin K2. Uh, I take pretty much a lot of my stuff comes from them. And the PQQ, however, that um, I've only been able to find from Life Extension. And I think Life Extension's pretty okay so far as I, I can tell. But Thorn is like my, my, my favorite um, company uh, so far just because I, I've got data from a scientist that I, that, that I you know, trust. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult issue, and tainted supplements uh, are a huge problem with athletes. A lot of false positives, or not even false positives, a lot of uh, athletes will take supplements, like if they go to like some just generic vitamin store, you know, whatever, name the name, and they pick up some sort of a creatine or muscle enhancer or this or that, and a lot of them are tainted with steroids, or they're used in the same labs, or created rather in the same labs, and they don't clean the bins. And so, like uh, the vats that they use to mix up one uh, supplement, will the whatever was in residual uh, traces of it will wind up in some other stuff. Wow, it's a real That's, issue. I think there's um, what you were ta- referring to there. A lot of sup- supplement companies that have a stamp on it called NSF, which is the National Sanitary Foundation, I believe. They go and they investigate where the the supplements manufactured and they look at the quality and they also I think even look at some some of the what's in the supplements if the if they contain what they're supposed to contain to some degree but I know they definitely look at the manufacturing place to see if things like that were you know things aren't being cleaned right and there's contamination and all that so supplements that have that stamp are probably a little more reliable than ones that don't but it's still not like a sure thing, right? right I mean, so yeah. it's not like it, it, just because it has that stamp, it's it's going to be the best supplement. Now, I think a lot of people listening to this, and they're going to probably have to listen three or four times and take notes and go over this and try to figure out if, if they're going to do something, how to act. A lot of people have a hard time digesting all of this data and trying to figure out what is the best way to proceed in terms of uh, investigating their own health. 
like uh, monitoring their blood levels and, and trying to find a primary care doctor that will kind of understand what they're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, the 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 primary care doctor thing, finding one, I, I certainly can't help with that because, I mean, that's the struggle that you and I have. But, you know, in terms of taking taking your own health into your own hands and my, monitoring blood biomarkers, I mean, there's a there's a few that are really really key I think for anyone doing any th- any type of experimentation that that they should do and we've we've talked about them already you know the 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 small dense LDL the total mm-hmm. LDL you also want to measure triglycerides high sensitive C reactive protein HB1 HbA1c which is the your marker of long-term fasting blood glucose but also there's another test that you can do um, that actually is a really comprehensive metabolic test to measure how your body is metabolizing carbohydrates, fatty acids, and amino acids. It's called um, the organic acid test, and Genova Diagnostics uh, offers it. And unfortunately, you do have to get your uh, primary care physician to prescribe or to like order that because that's not something that's that's uh, available to people. But It seems like there's room for a company to do this, like a one-stop shop company that sort of analyzes your health and prescribes to you, you know, like ex- explains to you what's lacking in your diet and what you could benefit from and what you can. I mean, uh-huh. it seems like there's a, there's a big opening for some sort of a business like that. Yeah, I mean, I think some people are actually doing it, like Genova Diagnostics, I think, is one. They do sort of do that. Like, they'll they'll tell you what's missing or, like, They'll help interpret your data and, and Genova Diagnostics, mm-hmm. and is it a nationwide company? Um, a nationwide, yeah, but I don't know about worldwide. <laughs> so mm, yeah, right. yeah, so if you're in Europe, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but and I think there's other companies that are kind of you know like Wellness FX kind of is doing that a little bit as well. They they give you a consult with someone after you get a variety of blood markers measured, and you know that you know, try to help you figure out that as well. And uh, you know, so it's it's certainly I think. There's there and other people. It's just a matter of finding a good one. That's always the, the catch, right? Yeah, it seems like it, with this kind of stuff for the average consumer, the average person that's listening to this, it seems very daunting. It's like, boy, there's so much to think about. There's so I mean, and a lot of times when people get inundated with that much data, they sort of shut down. Right. They go, this is just too much. I can't do this. This is too much. And I, w- I really wish there was like uh, a nationwide network of places like this where you could just go to, sort of like you can go to, you know, a dentist. There should be like a place where you could go to to get this kind of comprehensive information about your diet and the effects on your body and what genes you have. And yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. I mean, the pro- the problem is we're still figuring out all those nuances, and so you know, even even getting the data, having the person interpret it, it's you know, it's constantly evolving. Right. And you would have to have someone who's completely on top of it all the time. So we'd have to be like sending them new literature. Right. Yes. Like constantly. Yeah, because we're we're constantly changing the way we think about a variety of things and it would seem like some one. billionaire dude would like want to hire you up and have them like have you watch over them all the time and monitor their blood and try to figure out what they're doing wrong and prescribe things to them. Yeah, monitor their blood, give them young blood. Yeah, some George Soros type character. <laughs> hey, is that real, that young blood thing? Because I know that's yeah. a real thing with mice. But are they really doing that with people? Because I had heard that Peter Thiel had yeah. done it, but then he says it's bullshit. He's never done it. Oh, really? Yeah. He did say it was. Yes. Oh, See okay. See if you can find that, Jamie. Peter Thiel denies ever getting uh, injected with young blood. Okay, good to know. Yeah. yeah. No, it is. There, there, I know the, the clinical trials that were doing, done at Stanford. I don't know if they've been there published yet. Fuck. Uh, no, Peter Thiel is not harvesting the blood of the young. I look how they have a picture of him with fangs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, okay, it says stories of count, uh, oh, countesses bathing in virgin blood, vampiric nobles sucking the juice out of the young have captured our attention for centuries. When the story's coming out, the tech billionaire Peter Thiel was interested in transfusing teen blood into his own body. It sent Silicon Valley into a fever dream. But, th- but there is something... So there's, there's a company that does this. Oh, is there? I yeah. didn't know that. There's but... a Northern California company, a startup that does this. And that this, gives you young blood? Yeah. See if you can find that. So that there, that is a real thing. Parabiosis is what it's called. And there definitely... There it is. This anti-aging startup is charging thousands of dollars for teen blood. Look at this kid. This kid's probably high on ecstasy right there. Always <laughs> giving up his blood. So they take this young person's blood... It says, like, plot points from an HBO Silicon Valley. See, look, Valley. they just asked Peter Thiel. Then. Yeah, just so asked Peter Thiel. is this really credible? <laughs> well, it says, no, he's saying, I'm looking into parabiosis stuff, uh, okay. which right. I think is really interesting. This is where they, they you see, he probably is looking into it. He just hasn't done it because he's probably waiting to see if someone starts growing a foot on their head. <laughs> Jesse Karmazin. Karmazin? Karmazin agrees his startup, Ambrosia, is charging about $8,000 a pop, expensive, for blood transfusions from people under 25. He said at Code Conference on Wednesday, Ambrosia, which buys its blood from blood banks, now has about 100. Okay, buying its blood, so they must specify who the people are. Now, when you go right. to a blood bank, do they even know like what the fuck you've been doing with your body? That's what my, I'm wondering. I mean, it, it's I'm, I know they monitor for certain disease, like diseases and stuff that are like well yeah. known, but it's like all the other nuances, all the other stuff. I don't, I like don't like sugar and candy and right. bullshit and cigarettes, yeah, right? And, and small dense LDL. <laughs> is that a, that represented in your blood? Uh, I mean, there's certain biomarkers that you can that yeah you can absolutely measure, and you can certainly look at telomer length or uh, telomer length DNA damage things like that. I used to have a joke about Dick Cheney that Dick Cheney had an extra secret service agent that they put on this like super healthy diet, and he couldn't figure it out, and, and you know and he, he would have to run when everybody else did everything. He was just really there in case Dick had a heart attack. They were gonna cut this guy open like a fish and pull his organs out <laughs> and give <laughs> give Dick his heart. But this is, I mean, this is what you would want, sort of. You would want someone like, okay, I want your blood. I'm going to pay you for your blood. But look, you can't be drinking, right. no smoking, no sugar, no bullshit. You'd have to monitor them like you would like someone like the surrogate moms. Yeah, you know, they're, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You'd want fresh blood. Right. You'd have to, they'd have to live with me. I'd have to yes. like know exactly what they were doing. Them. Right. Well, you know what? You know them. what else? This is, and this will be up and coming. It's not just fresh blood. So, you know, for people listening that don't know, transplanting blood from young animals into old animals, like, rejuvenates their brain. It makes them live longer, rejuvenates all their organs so, like, they're healthier. And And and, conversely. And conversely, putting the old blood into young animals messes them up. (laughs) It makes them age, basically. It it makes them perform worse uh, cognitively and all that. Jamie's got something he's going to pull up here. What does it say? It's saying they found it in one test that it might have worked, but it hasn't been replicated. And these two paragraphs say that it might not even be true. Which one? Interesting. Says some aspects of aging, the 2013 study found could be reversed when older mice get blood from younger ones, but other researchers haven't been able to replicate these results. And the benefits of parabiosis in humans remains unclear. Yeah, I remember that what happened was they they couldn't replicate the mechanism. They thought it was this growth factor called GDNF. And they're like, oh, that's not replicatable. Like, that's not what's doing it mm. and then this other study came out showing that you could transplant the old blood into the young and it would reverse the effects and so now scientists are going oh is it that the young blood is uh, rejuvenating or is that the old blood is accelerating the aging right ah, see the difference so right. so that's kind of like i think where it's possibly at now but um 
I was going to just mention to you that microbiome that's heading there as well. Like there was a preliminary study that was uh, published not long ago in killfish where the, the microbiome from young fish was transplanted in the old fish and it like extended their lifespan by like 40%. Whoa. So, like so you take the microbiome from a, a young person. Like my son. Yeah. <laughs> freeze it, it down. Yeah. So it you. Well, it's funny because um, they think the mechanism has to do with the immune system. Remember I was telling you mm-hmm. your microbiome makes these short chain fatty acids and it totally regulates your immune system. It, you know, you, it regulates the amount of, um, you know, a variety of different immune cells you're, that you're making. And so like hematocytes poesis is one which is making new blood cells and um, there's been studies that have looked at the microbiome of like really healthy 90 year olds and they look like the microbiome looks like like a 30 year old even though these are 90 year old people so usually the microbiome is vastly different in older people but these healthy 90 year olds obviously they're healthy if they make it to 90 it's not that's not an average age that most people make it to um their microbiomes looked like a like a thirty year old, which is super interesting. Wow. So it's a whole new. I think we're going to start to see like kind of like the parabiosis. It's like the microbiome microbiome transplant. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Young poo make aged fish live longer. <laughs> I love headlines how they break headlines down and just just get you to click on it. Well, poop's the easiest, right? Because yeah, now sure. it's like you know, and they're doing these 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 capsules now where mm-hmm. they're taking poop freezing pills to, poop right yeah and and it's like helping people with their ibs and yeah of course like i think the problem was like making sure it doesn't taste like shit when it's going down yeah. right because like the capsule can open it up it just makes it with sugar and then you got right. other problems right <laughs> a spoonful of sugar <laughs> makes the poop go down i know it's yeah it's it's crazy what do you think about stevia St- like so the stevia um there's it's it's a non-nutritive sweetener so it's not like it's not like uh, aspartame or saccharin or what's the other one sucralose yeah which by the way those have all been shown to like screw up the microbiome yeah those are really bad yeah they like change the by the way bacteria. diet coke is what the president drinks 12 cans a day of what yes no wonder why he's making shit decisions 12 are, are you serious tw- yes so new york times story they said that he drinks 12 cans of Diet Coke a day and watches as much as eight hours of television a day. So he's 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 literally like a test monkey. <laughs> Is that really true? Yes. yes. <laughs> That's crazy. It's really true. See if you can find that article. Yeah, yeah. 12 so cans the- of Diet There it is. Trump reportedly drinks 12 cans of Diet Coke. It looks like you're losing an, using an ad blocker. What's the main... Um, the main sweetener in Diet Coke. Aspartame, I think. Is it aspartame? Yeah. Trump drinks di- 12 Diet Cokes per day. What can that do to a person's body? And then they have a scientist on. <laughs> <laughs> well, We're fucked! I'll tell you what it does to the microbiome. It, like, changes the composition so that you're, like, you're, you're getting the kind of bacteria that are really good at harvesting the glucose from, from like, the small intestine area. And it makes people, like, become obese. Like that's the associative studies in people like that. They've shown that in people. And then, of course, they've done causal studies in animals showing that. But stevia is interesting because um, I've seen positive studies with that where it seems to like improve insulin sensitivity, which is kind of weird. It is um, weird. I, I personally am always um, I, I, I'll use stevia like if I'm like going to let's make some hot cocoa with 100% cocoa and it just tastes like ass and like I need some stevia in here. It's like otherwise you're just doing a shot of it like whiskey style. Yeah, that nasty. Hot cocoa with no sugar is rough. Yeah, 100% cocoa. Cacao. Yeah, cacao. There's all sorts of benefits with that too but but yeah, with this, I don't really use a lot of stevia. Like my my in-laws, 
they they like to put it in their smoothies because I've gotten so used to my smoothies tasting Kaylee mm. that I guess, you know, and and plus I don't eat any anything sweet, so I don't really need it, but they like to put it in their smoothies and right. you know, I don't I don't know if it has any we haven't really seen negative health consequences with the exception I think there was one study in rats where they gave them like exceptional amounts and it like changed the the hormonal profile or something. So I didn't consume any during pregnancy because I was worried about right. that. But um, Well, don't be a rat. You'd be fine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> study, study. But now, I think that's probably my my choice. If I were to sweeten something, like put, my, put it in my coffee or something, I'd put stevia. Well, Trump is grossly overweight. You know? Yeah. that's So the microbiome, what's funny is that people taking Diet Coke are, try, are, are trying to like improve. They don't, they, you know, they don't want the refined sugar. Yeah. They don't want to have the, the constant insulin response. And so they're drinking the Diet Coke. It's kind of ironic that it's like, it's like making them more obese by changing the gut microbiome. Now, is, is it safe to drink just one can every now and again? Or is it just I'm something you should totally I'm sure one avoid? can every now and then is okay. You right. know, it's not, I mean... It's not going to like completely – now, 12 cans a day or even one can a day, you're constantly going to start – your microbiome, you're constantly going to keep shifting it in towards, you know. Really? The, even the, one can a day? Probably, yeah. Wow. Because it's – the I microbiome guess, yeah. is – yeah. I like yeah. the way it tastes, though. Mm. Diet I do, Coke? I do enjoy a Diet Coke. I haven't had Diet Coke had since, like, 2006. I had one yesterday in a hotel. Cracked it open. Really? Yeah, I haven't. I really cold. haven't had one since 2006. It's cold. Yeah. I, like I used to drink them. I used to drink them um, when uh, for like in college and stuff to stay awake and study for mm. exams and all that. But if you're taking something like that, um, should you take a corresponding like some sort of a probiotic to try to combat that? I mean, the problem with that is, you know, the probiotics which, by the way, there's all sorts of interesting studies that have shown effectiveness of certain probiotics that are, you know, have a lot of, um, that have live bacteria and a lot of them. But, you know, in order for the probiotics to work, you either have to constantly take them or there needs to be space in your gut for them to take residence in, right? So if you're, like, filling your body with all sorts of sugar or Diet Coke and all this, then where where is the probiotic that you, you're taking in going to attach, right? Right, right? So it's kind of flow through. And the flow through has benefits, but you have to keep taking it, right. you know, f- for that for that to happen. And so the... So really, a healthy diet's the way. It's not... You can't just counteract with supplementation. A healthy, a healthy diet's the way, meaning, you know, the... the, the fermentable fiber which is what helps grow helps the 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 commensal and good bacteria basically grow and thrive but um probiotics helped me a lot like after i had some i had some gut issues from from stress with uh graduate graduate school and so that definitely um helped me and um i don't i I take them once in a while now like you know but i don't i don't take them every day like i did you know when i was like trying to like heal myself um and and the one i was taking i think we've talked about was, was 450 billion it's called VSL number three, but now there's another company called VisBiome that is like the guy who made VSL number three is doing this VisBiome, make the same formulation. I've tried it out as well, um, but it's like a little cheaper and I don't have any affiliation with either of those companies, but there's been clinical clinical studies with both of them showing effectiveness. And so um, it's, it's certainly an, an interesting um, field, growing field. And there have been some clinical studies in humans where, for example, the one that's super interesting... Uh, the brain, the brain stuff, the way it's affecting the brain is interesting. And there's clinical studies. There was one recent one, I think I tweeted, where there was like ten randomized control trials. They weren't really high quality, but it's a start, and it like improved um, measures of anxiety in people. 
other studies have shown randomized controlled trials, been a couple others showing it improves depression scores and also in cognition. So there's, you know, again, the immune system, modulation of the immune system will affect the brain. Immune system definitely is, you know, basically inflammatory factors and things like that can cross over to the to blood-brain barrier and get in the brain and disrupt neurotransmitter um, production and all sorts of stuff. But also the gut-brain access, the vagal nerve, where, like, you can make certain things that are, like, if you, if you have certain bacteria in the gut that are making, for example, GABA, that can, like, stimulate the nerve in an inhibitory way that like calms and, and does something calming to the to the to the brain part. We don't really understand all the mechanisms. It's just fascinating field that I'm like trying to follow and keep up on. You know, but I mean the question is do do normal healthy people need to take probiotics all the time? And I don't know the answer, but I do think that we need to to eat the right foods to to get our microbiome healthy and avoid things like you know, what's it called? Aspartame. Yeah. Uh, aspartame, nutra sweet all that, that's the same stuff, right? That's NutraSweet aspartame. Yeah, I think, I think it is. Yeah. The, the blue packet. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, getting back to developing fetuses and uh, uh, an infant developing in the womb, when you were talking about uh, foods that cause inflammation um, and autoimmune diseases, there's, there's a correlation between those two, correct? So when you're um, eating inflammation-causing foods, uh, refined carbohydrates, refined sugars, and uh, you have a baby, and if you, you have this inflammation in your body and you're having autoimmune reactions, uh, and this can trigger many autoimmune diseases that people have, um, what's, is there, has there been studies done trying to understand what happens when you consume a lot of pro-inflammatory foods, foods that cause inflammation, and what kind of a reaction that has to the uh, developing child? Well, studies have been done... Um, you know, to to establish causation in animals, and looking at correlation, there have been correlate, correlative studies in humans. So, for example, most of the time, though, people the correlative studies aren't looking at whether or not they're consuming the quote unquote inflammatory foods that cause inflammatory types of reactions like refined sugar. They're just looking at obese mothers, right. and usually, someone who's obese typically is not eating a healthy diet. Right. So I think that you more times than not can say, well, they're probably eating a lot of refined carbohydrates and, and, and things like that. But, you know, um, and, and so that, you know, the correlation between that and looking at, you know, negative health consequences and offspring like type 1 diabetes, um, even poor, uh, doing poorly on um, cogn cognition tests and things like that, that's been looked at. Animal studies, there have been studies that have shown you know, causally that you can do that by, by give, feeding a mouse a high fat, high sugar diet and then, you know, making the female mouse obese and, you know, changing basically the way their the offspring metabolism and their immune cells are reacting. So things like that definitely have been shown in, in animal studies, but it's it's really almost impossible to show a causal study like that in, in humans. Mm. Right. So it's like you kind of have to like you've got these like you were showing with the um, acetaminophen and ADHD risk. Like you're not going to have a controlled trial where they're going to give women acetaminophen during pregnancy and see if it causes ADHD. Like that's never going to happen. Right. Like you of can't. Course. It's not. It's it's un, it's unethical, it's unethical. Right. right? You know. So then the next best thing would be to like then go to animal studies and show it. You know the problem. The problem with the animal studies, and this is this is always the problem, is you know you never know how much of it translates. You know things things are different. Like the way they're they metabol the livers of of mice metabolize xenobiotics can be a little different than humans. And so things like 
you know, these these mice can be a little more susceptible to things like BPA and, you know, things that are that are damaging um, than than to humans, which which can contain certain enzymes um, that some of these mice lack that can, you know, basically alter that metabolism and make it not so harmful, so to speak. Mm. Um, but but still, I think it's 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 good if you if you've got like the perspective studies in humans that's correlating and then you've got the mechanistic studies in animals it's a stronger it's a stronger argument than if you just looked at one or the other you know and there have been studies that show there's a correlation between my gut microbiome and uh children with autism and asperger's and several other diseases right yeah yeah there have been the the gut microbiome seems to play a, a major role in um there's definitely some changes with autistic children um and um in Asperger's, like being on the autistic spectrum. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's something that's like, I'm not sure it's entirely understood, but there's a connection there. There's a connection with, with the gut microbiome and Parkinson's disease with um, multiple sclerosis. I mean, these are, these are lots of studies are coming out showing these connection with brain, you know, problems, not, not just, you know, autoimmune type of, of, of um, diseases like multiple sclerosis, but neurodegenerative diseases and just even behavioral diseases. So, you know, there's, it's a whole, it's a, it's a, we're kind of just starting to scratch the surface of this field with the microbiome and even cancer. Like there's, there's, you know, it's known that the, the, some of the short chain fatty acids that microbiome certain species make, um, increase the production of something called natural, uh, natural killer T cells. And there's been animal studies where you inject them with like human tumors and literally it can, you know, if you give these um, animals a, a big dose of probiotics, which which help um, create the species that make these um, short chain fatty acids that make T regulatory cells, they can kill cancer cells almost as good as the chemo control that they're giving these animals. And then if you look at, there's some preliminary human trials, like for example, humans that had colorectal cancer and they're given a high dose of probiotic, like close to, to 400 billion probiotic products uh, a day, it like lowered their cancer recurrence. Of course, they had the colon uh, surgically removed, but you know, still it's lowering their cancer recurrence. And I think that's uh, interesting along with knowing what we know about animal studies and natural killer T cells and all that. So, you know, it's, it's not just brain, but it's also a lot of diseases, yeah. cancer, you know, um, autoimmune diseases, lots of things. And gut is so important. It really is. It's the it's the major source of inflammation in the body. It, it's the major source. Like people are so worried about taking this X thing exogenously from some chemical, and it's like, yeah, you should be worried about that, but you should be worried about your gut health. Like really, and probably one of the least understood in, yeah, in terms it is. of like the general public. Yeah, I mean, and even scientists. Like we're just now really diving into that, and I think that I should say least aware. Right. Yeah, exactly. Most people have no idea that it's even an issue. Now, when you consider the fact that the rise in children on the spectrum uh, corresponds with the rise of refined carbohydrates and refined sugars in our diet, do you think that there's some sort of a connection there? Because it has a negative effect. Refined sugars have a negative effect on your microbiome. Certainly. I mean, there's, I think there's lots of contributing factors to autism. You know, I published a paper on this with vitamin D deficiency being one. Um, I think that diet you know, diet, um, a lot of other factors play a role. Paternal age uh, actually plays a role. Um, smoking has also been shown, like um, maternal smoking. So paternal I, age, apparently, uh, particularly for the father. The father, p- paternal age, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that that seems to, and that's something that's, a couple of studies have published, and I think even recently, it just kind of a big one came out that was confirming. Because most people think it's maternal. Right. But, but it's, it's actually well, both, right? Maternal plays a role in uh, Down syndrome. 
Uh-huh. So, but uh, I'm not aware of maternal age being linked to autism, although I wouldn't, you know, be surprised. Um, th- there's probably an interaction with all these things, an interaction right. with, you know, the 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 quality of, of the DNA in a woman's egg or sperm or man's sperm and the type of diet they have and whether they're taking you know, acetaminophen or whatever, fill in the blank, pharmaceutical or... And the diet of the father. And the which, diet of the sure, father. like you were talking about before with obese people. Yeah. And what's interesting with that, now in that diet, I mean, in that study, that was totally a pilot experiment just looking at how it altered gene expression. But if you look in the animal studies, paternal diet, so, so males, male mice that were given a high fat, high sugar diet. Most of the time, by the way, when you see headlines and it says high fat diet causes blank, High fat diet in animal studies is always high fat, high sugar, and they always always it's all it's almost always almost always high high sucrose and high high fat. But why don't they say that? I don't I don't know (laughs) because I guess you know they're 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 so so drastically changing the fat composition that they just kind of always say the high fat and the interaction between these two things just really is now starting to be understood. But it, it, it really is. High fat is almost always – so I always call it high inflammatory diet because it's oh, the combination right. of the two. But anyways, they feel, they, if you feed male mice um, this diet of high fat and high sucrose, they become obese. And um, then they have offspring. If you feed the, the, their, their offspring normal diet, so not, not the high fat. So they just fed a normal chow diet. Those offspring, female offspring, don't become obese, but they get type 1 di- diabetes. Wow. So it's because, and what, and what was found is that this, the um, the obesity was changing genes that regulate pancreatic beta cell uh, insulin production in their sperm DNA, and that was passed on to the to the offspring. Wow! So, so that's kind of again looking so, at the. It's also complex. I know it is. It's complex. It's interesting. I'm. I certainly like. I'm constantly trying to optimize. You know everything I can to you know, the best of my uh, ability and things are always changing. You know, that's the thing with science. And that's also the thing with, you know, following, following someone or following a certain dogma, you know, things change and you have to be able to like accept that things change. The more data we have, the more tools that we have at our disposable to, at our, you know, to, to investigate things, you know, our, our, our paradigm shifts like saturated fat. I mean, that's it's a huge paradigm shift. You know, people in my parents generation, like my dad, and he's just convinced that like saturated fat is like going to kill you. Right. You know, I mean, it's it's parroted by people every day. And, you know, we've talked about this before, I believe, on the podcast, you and I about that study, uh, the studies rather where the scientists were paid off by the sugar industry. Right. And that's the sugar industry is probably one of the worst examples. Like it's not always the case, you know, like if you have someone funding your research that is involved in whatever you're investigating, the sugar industry is particularly bad, but it's not always the case. Like I was involved in research um, with blueberries and the research was funded by the High Bush Blueberry Council. And so we did this placebo controlled trial where we were looking at a you know, there's a whole panel of scientists involved, and I was just one of the scientists involved. And I was looking specifically at DNA damage and, um, you know, how blueberries modulated that DNA damage, which can lead to aging and cancer and stem cell dysfunction, all sorts of things. And there was a placebo group. So it was an enormous amount of work. You know, we had to isolate blood from pa- patients. They were, they were given this blueberry powder. They were taking twice a day for eight weeks or placebo powder. And then we had to, you know, look at their DNA damage. And um, what my work found was that 
to my surprise, so blueberries lower DNA damage, which is what I thought because they have a variety of compounds in them that are known to be antioxidants. But what was really surprising to me was that it, uh, the placebo actually lowered DNA damage just as well, if not better, than the blueberry powder. And the placebo powder had a little bit of refined sugar in it and some um, like coloring, food coloring and stuff. And so I was like, oh my God, what's going on here? How is the sugar lowering DNA damage? Well, it turns out I had looked at gene expression data as well. All these genes um, that, are, that are involved in stress response and in hormesis. The reason I was looking at that is because there are certain compounds in the blueberries that can have a hormetic response. And I wanted to see if that was being activated. Well, it wasn't really robustly being activated in the blueberries, but in placebo, some of these pathways, the same pathways that like sulforaphane can activate really well, to some degree was being activated because we think it was slightly stressful. Of course, it was a very small amount of sugar and, and also the uh, the dyes that were used are, have been shown to cause a little bit of a hormetic response. Hmm. But, you know, we're going to publish that data. It's not like because the Blueberry Foundation funded this study, you know, you know, it's the, the data is still the data is the data. Right. We didn't, you know, change anything. So it's not always the case. And again, there's something very interesting here. And like you said, science always surprises you and always the things that you like. It's something you predict it's completely the opposite. And there's something always interesting there. Always, you know, it's hmm. like as humans, we think we know biology and we're like, oh, this is going to be predicted to be that. And all of a sudden it's complete opposite. And you're like. What's going on? Every time you come on the podcast, though, I'm reminded of the fact there's so much data. It is impossible to keep it all in in, in your head, and, and especially for one person. When you're de dealing with all these different fields, all these different different scientists working on all these different studies, and it's almost impossible for one person to have all this data in their head. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but it's interesting to me. I yeah. Mean, oh, it's fascinating. It's unbelievably fascinating. Yeah. But it's one of the reasons why boiling something down to a clickbait title of an article is so in, it's so enticing because it's right. like oh tell me high fat diet kills the mice fuck that all right I'm I'm I'm, I'm going back to low fat vitamins give fat you cancer yogurt. oh vitamins give you cancer <laughs> that's that's gonna that's, make a headline yeah that's, yeah those, when you think those something are hilarious yeah then you have to dig into them and you're like mm, wait a minute yeah yeah the the sugar industry study was from the 1950s or 1960s yeah It'd probably be pretty difficult to have something that biased and 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 fraudulent today there was even another one that just came out recently like we talked about one last year but there was another one that came out another study i think it was published in like pnas or plos one of those two showing that they they um suppressed data that that refined sugar played a role in cancer and in heart disease so so and this was the 70s i, I believe um so there's more more than one you know study that have now linked them to to basically uh, holding back data from being published, um, you know, so they're they're one that's definitely uh, I would say pretty bad. I had someone send me some review articles that were uh, basically stating that refined sugar was not bad, and the review articles were were uh, funded by the Sugar Foundation. And I was like, oh, this is the one. I usually don't say this. Like I usually don't say like you know based on who funds the study, like just the conflicts of interest, you know, disclosures. But this is the one time where it's like. You know, the Sugar Foundation, they're just notoriously bad. In well, that. it's also contrary to everything else that's been established, right? Yeah. When you understand, it's like when you look at, like I said, all those things, the mechanism and you look at the interaction between foods and how the body's, you know, processing these things. And you look at the observational data and controlled trials. I mean, you know, how many things can you say, you know, no to? I mean, right. you just, you, 
Now, just looking at one thing there, you know, that's not as strong. But, you know, looking at all of it is the big picture. But there's just so much money and sugar. So many things have sugar in them. I mean, what, what we've allowed to have done in this country is literally allowed this one thing, this one substance to be in. I mean, what percentage of our food do you think has sugar in it? If you had to well, guess. I mean, if you go to a restaurant or you go to get some condiments or, or fast food. Yeah. I mean, those things, there's, there's, it's slipped in everywhere, like Thai everywhere. food yep. or, you know, it's like you go and it's like, oh, this tastes sweet. Like, well, it's, it's got sugar. Right. right. Yeah. It's got sugar in it, you know? Yeah. So it, it's certainly, but that's almost acceptable. It's like, I get what you're doing. You're trying to make something taste delicious because you're an artist. Right, you're you're cooking a meal, and this meal is not just nutritious. It's also supposed supposed to be a uh, a, a delight to the senses. Right, uh-huh. that I kind of get, you know. But what I don't get is that it's permeated our entire diet, the the average American diet. It's it's in everything. It's in the drinks we drink. It's in the foods we eat. It's in the bread that you consume. It's in the pasta. It's in the spaghetti sauce. It's in, I mean. It's in everything. It's if you go down the the aisle at a supermarket and just grab a random can thing, grab it, turn it, you're gonna read sugar. It's just it's you're gonna see it much more often than you're not going to see it. Right. It's stunning. Yeah, I know that happened to me not long ago when I like sent Dan to the store to get some like some kind of like I was wanting some Worcestershire sauce like for my steak for some reason I was like having a, a nostalgic thing. I was like, wait a minute. Oh, I can't eat this. Is it sugar in it? Yeah. Yeah. Worcestershire sauce tastes like shit. Why does it have sugar in it? Because <laughs> it take more, tastes more like shit if it didn't? It, it for whatever, you know, it's something that I, I ate as like a girl and I had this craving for it. And uh, I used to eat that as looked, a kid too. Maybe it was like more common when we were young. I think so. Because it's really, you know, it's not as common anymore. No, you never even hear about it. <laughs> like my kids don't even know what it but is. But it is, yeah. yeah. My kid loves Cholula. It's probably got sugar in it, right? I don't know if that one does actually. I think that, See, that might Cholula, be one of the better I bet ones. It does my my uh, seven year old fucking loves Cholula? She puts it in everything. She put it in milk. We had to tell her stop oh, doing that's that. Gross. She's so gross. <laughs> <laughs> she thinks it's hilarious. She'll squirt it right at her tongue. She'll shake it right at her tongue. Yeah. She loves it. Sugar Doesn't great. no sugar? Yeah. Beautiful. Great. Yeah, it's probably yeah. got something else bad in it. Probably got some weird red dye. It's probably not even really red. It's probably brown. I think if people are going to eat sugar, though. Mm. The one thing they should do is eat it within a certain time window. (laughs) What's in there? Nothing. Sodium. There it goes. Water, peppers, salt, vinegar, and xanthum. That's like a gum. Oh, yeah. Xanthum gum. Spices. Ah, this doesn't seem that bad. Yeah, yeah, I don't think xanthum gum's that bad, but some of the other emulsifiers have been shown to also disrupt gut microbiome. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, bio K, that stuff, those little yogurt things that kids drink, uh-huh. you know those things? I don't, no. but it sounds familiar, like yogurty thing that a kids would drink. Yeah, it's, it's got like a, a ton little, of sugar probably. I'm sure it does. It tastes sweet, but it's got, it's supposedly got some sort of probiotic in it for kids. Do you, do you like limit the... Yeah, there it is, bio kids. We, t- they take regular bio K, they, they take that stuff, 100% probiotic. Zero percent yogurt. Okay, so it doesn't have any lactose. Um, but like, what's in there? Does it have a an ingredients thing? More. Where's the sugar, bitch? <laughs> I'm, I'm constantly like Apple F ingredients yeah. like on every page. Hundred percent probiotic. Come on, what's in there? What's in there, you fuckers? Doesn't say. Does it say ingredients? I don't see it. 
Oh, they're hiding it from you. <laughs> <laughs> it's sweet, man. I'm telling you, it's I, I have a hard time believing there's no sugar in there. Well, the other thing with those probiotic supplemented things is that like the amount of probiotics in them are like minimal. Right. It's like, yeah. yeah. I mean, my kid likes kimchi. Really? The, yeah. The one that puts the chili on her tongue. She's a freak. <laughs> she sugar. Nine grams. Is she more like you? Nine or? grams in those little things. You know, my, um, my, both my youngest kids are a combination of me. It's, re- it's very weird. You know, like uh, there's traits like the, the seven-year-old is way funnier. She's hilarious. Really? She's like purposely funny. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, but the that's nine-year-old so cool. is just psychotic. She's <laughs> like, she'll, she'll do things. Like we went to uh, a resort once on vacation and she does uh, cheerleading and um, uh, gymnastics. Uh-huh. She's really into gymnastics. She did cartwheels a half a mile home. We had a walk, like a half Whoa. a mile. She did cartwheels the entire way back. That's crazy. She's psycho. Yeah, she's straight up psycho. Like she's really driven. Oh, she's yeah. crazy. She's got a six pack. She's nine. But you're really driven. Yeah, it's sad seeing a nine-year-old. <laughs> I'm like, you're fucked, kid. She has a six you're pack? You're going to be nuts. Oh, I'll show you. I'll show you later. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's disturbing. Yeah. Like, I mean, like ripped. Like, I would get dizzy. But she eats everything. It's not like she's like, uh, you know, like anorexic or anything. She just exercises constantly. That early life exercise is important, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. They do MMA. They do uh, karate. Both of them do? Yeah. That's cool. They're into martial arts. Got one of them into jiu-jitsu. Yeah. I'm trying. Did you expose them to, like, different like different things to see what they like? Yeah. 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 I mean, it seems like gymnastics is her big one. They, kids, little girls... Love other things where other little girls are also being active, you know, so gymnastics is a good one because, you know, they're all doing their tumbling. and they're mm-hmm. I did their, that when I was, yeah. when I was young. It's, I think it's really good for body control, too. And, I've, and, I, and when I was like, talking to her, like she likes jujitsu and she likes um, uh, gymnastics, too. And I said, well, they really help each other because your jujitsu will benefit greatly from your body control that you get from gymnastics. Like the ability to move your body, like do backflips and flexibility stands. And it's just also just the the balance and the the ability, just the dexterity that you get. I I totally agree. I I started um, ice skating when I was really young, two and a half. My mom says I started when I was two and a half. Yeah. So I started ice skating when I was two and a half. And that also is like a lot of balance and very, you know, similar to like ballet too, or just graceful sort of Mm -hmm. things. And um, it really, I think, helped me with. A variety of other sports I did later, you know, surfing. My surfing was, you know, a lot more graceful, dance-like. Mm. Um, Do you still surf? I didn't. I haven't surfed since pre-pregnancy. Yeah, I would worry about sharks. <laughs> You're a mommy now. I'm. You I'm get eaten. getting more concerned about sharks. I forgot Fuck what the, those things. The last thing there was something. <laughs> I am. Yeah, I'm getting a lot more worried about the sharks. Did you see that video of the guy who was swimming? He was underwater scuba diving, and the shark came from behind him and bumped him in the head. Is enormous no, shark. No, but oh, you showed me the terrifying. surfer one and that freaked me out. Oh, the one with the guy was surfing and yeah. the shark was right next to him? They're so, so big and all it takes is, I mean, they're eating machines. Yeah. All it takes is yeah. one, look at this, this guy's underwater, check this out. Boom. Play that again because it didn't. Is that a great white? That thing's yeah, huge. it is. Look. Oh, he opens his mouth. It hit him in the head. I mean, that thing so, easily could have Where is he at? Him. Where is this? I don't know, somewhere you shouldn't go. <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> Fuck that. So do you do like snorkeling no, or anything? I no, I have. I did when like I in was Hawaii. in Hawaii yeah. and I was terrified. Were we you? did this one cool thing where uh, we were on the Big Island last year and uh, they take you out 
to where the dolphins are. They like find schools of dolphins, and they uh, when the dolphins are in the area, they'll take you out of the boat. They find out where the dolphins are. They spot them, and then you jump in the water and you oh, snorkel with so the dolphins. Cool. Yeah, it was amazing. Did they were they like friendly? Did they come up to they you? They don't and... give a fuck about you. That's so. Yeah. Aren't, their dolphins are like really smart. Yeah, well, they're they're wild dolphins. They're not like SeaWorld. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, why do I care about you, man? I don't even know what you're saying. I don't know what you're doing. Why, I would love why to are you do wearing that. a watch? Like, they, they, don't, <laughs> yeah. they don't want to have anything to do with you. Why are you monitoring just, your heart rate? <laughs> yeah, they just avoid you. But it's just, it's a crazy feeling just to be in the literally the middle of the ocean, miles from the water or miles from the shore, rather. Right. And you're just looking down and you see the vastness of it all. I think it's in a lot of ways. There's a reason why beach communities are kind of cool. They're like peaceful. Mm -hmm. They're very mellow. I think part of it is because you're humbled by this gigantic body of water that's in your face every day. I think it's it's uh, akin to staring up at the stars. There's just something mm -hmm. something about the vastness of the ocean that's so undeniable. Your 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 insignificance in the greater scheme of things is so undeniable that I think it chills people out. Whereas I think cities make people like more like I gotta fucking get over there. These cars are in my way. Get out of my way, bitch! It's like yeah. you're, you're you're too much of an important factor in your immediate world. I think that's why I was really drawn to surfing in the first place. Is because I'm a really go 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 kind of go getter, constantly, constantly next. What's next? I'm thinking. Yeah. And and being out in the water was the one place that I would put all that behind and I would chill, you know, and I felt really good just sitting on my board and, and having the water. Of course, I wasn't thinking about the sharks, but just having the water, you know, on me and just sitting out there and watching the waves. And, you know, it's, it's certainly um, there is definitely a very chilling factor to it and, and for sure humbling. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Like, I still am, like, terrified, like, on a big day going out because the, the oceans are really scary. Like, aside from the sharks, like, waves are freaking scary just the power of them to move are, you around oh yeah i've had them i mean i've had some scary I, it's kind of amazing i get back in after that but yeah but um where it's so powerful i mean you know where it's just slamming you down you're doing donuts and you're like which way is up oh my god you know yeah and, oh so, my god <laughs> like, I, can't, I can't even imagine and some of those crazy people that get um they get dragged out on a, a boat all the way out into like, oh, near yeah, mexico the towing. Yeah, they get towed in, and then they just jump on those waves that are 100 feet high. Like, oh, I f like oh. my I get sweaty hands when I watch videos of that because I know the power of the wave, and I'm like, they're insane. How can yeah. they? It's like huge. Like just because some of them do, you know, end up in the whitewash, and it's like how powerful that must be. I'm friends so. with Shane Dorian. He's one of those mm -hmm. world record holder, champion type, big wave surfer yeah. dudes, and. I, I've seen some videos of him doing it. It's just, it's. I don't understand. He's, he's la he laughs about it when you bring it up. It's just what he does. But it's. Just, I, I've seen videos of him doing it. What is this? Is this him? Yeah. Here it goes. Jesus Christ. Jaws two. Look at him. Yeah. Like, come on. I go bow hunting with that dude. We went. Uh, oh really? Yeah. In Hawaii, went to Lanai. We we bow hunted. Oh, but look, look at this. At that. Look how how big those waves are. And he's right. So he came up out of that. Oh, oh look at the top. Look at the drop. Oh. <laughs> That's so crazy. Oh, if that God. came down on you, you're dealing with what a million pounds of water right. hitting you in the face. How do they? How like I want to know how they like survive that stuff because they it does animal. come down on them. Well, I just think th this is how he lives. This is his life. He loves it. 
I mean, I think he's been doing this for a long time. It's just a natural part of life to him. You know, he lives on the big island. Look how big that wave is. This is insane. That's totally insane. See, this he's is like... clapping, too. He's clapping <laughs> in the middle of it. It's like he's obviously having a great old time. Fuck that. For sure. I mean, yeah. I, I like surfing, but I wouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah, and the sharks, too. I mean, uh, the big island, like, you always hear about people getting bit by sharks, especially tiger sharks. Is that where Bethany Hamilton, the one, the girl that like lost her arm, was she in Hawaii? Yeah, I believe island? so. I believe so. Yeah. That, how about that? That little kid loses her arm. She's like, well, I got another one. She's Get still me back surfing. On the board. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it just shows you how awesome surfing must be, but not for me. Not, I wouldn't be that awesome for me either. And and I haven't gone back out. I mean, I'm just, I, I can only like, I've got so much time in the day to like work out. And yeah. So I need to like. I need to get the biggest bang for my buck yeah. right now. Yeah. So you're back running now. I'm actually haven't I haven't gone back running. I'm I'm planning on it like What I'm, are you doing for exercise? I'm doing the high intensity Oh, those spin stuff. So you yeah. con continued that. Yeah. How many months your son you said is 5? He's 4, four, months, old, four, four months. months old. Yeah. So yeah, so you, what, how long are you going to give yourself before you try to start running again? I think after the holidays I'm going to do it. Yeah. What about things like CrossFit or something like that? Well, I only have so much time. I think, right. the, I think the organized I like the spin. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it's not like your dancey spin. I right. tried that. I didn't like that. Um, do you do a lot of weightlifting type I, exercises? I, I need to do more. Mm. Um, I have like, I do it. I don't have a gym membership anymore. Um, so I have like weights and I'll do it like, you know, at my place. But I haven't been um, doing as much of the strength training as I should. Because mm. that's also extremely beneficial. And, you know. Bone density. It's a big one yeah, for bone density. Bone density. Also just muscle mass. Yes. I mean, like there's been studies showing that people that do strength training, like they have a 23% uh, lower all-cause mortality and like a 30% lower cancer-related mortality independent of any other like, you know, health factors like obesity and all that yeah. stuff. So, um, you know, the muscle mass is another thing that's really um, important. In fact, there was also another interesting study showing that like people that had leg strength, like their leg strength was correlated to like um, massive improvements in cognitive function. Hmm. Um, leg strength? Where not arms, but only the legs. So they, they you know, did various, various different um, exercises were done, like hand grip strength and all that, but it was leg strength specifically. I don't know if it's like something, the blood flow, something about your, how strong your legs are is somehow, to, somehow indicative of blood flow to the brain or That's weird. I don't know so dudes who do squats are geniuses if you know anybody who does a lot of squats go to them so I do I do air squats like the body squats weight squats yeah, yeah yeah do those and like you know like do I you do the Hindi style ones where you come up on the ball of your foot um, do you know what no, those is that, are? Do you kind of jump as well like no no, no. those are like burpees Hindu no. squats you um, you you I could do it for you real quick essentially you start off like this and then as you go down, your heels come up off the ground like this. Oh. And then your hand touches the floor. And then you come up. And what it really does is it works the quadriceps really well around the knees. And a lot of people find it to be uh, an excellent stability exercise. And they're and called, it, what are they called? Hindu squats. Hindu squats. Oh, here, this guy's going to do it, this one. See how he's going up on his heels? This is like part of it. You drop down, your heels come up. And then as you press up. Well, he's not he's not dropping his heels as he comes up, which I think is weird. He's I think he's doing a, kind of a variation on Hindu squats because his heels are never coming down. He's also wearing raised heel shoes, which I don't agree with. So your heels come all the way down when you come up. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Once you go I'll up, try my it. heels go all the way down. See if you can find someone who's like. I just don't. Those shoes are not. 
those aren't wise. Those shoes were invented. Those kind of shoes, are, those are running shoes that are invented back when Nike came up with them where you land on the heel instead of landing on the ball of the foot, which mm-hmm. is the way your foot is naturally supposed to absorb shock. You know, not, you know, I'm sure you know about all that, where Nike sort of changed the nope. gate. No? Nope. Nike literally changed the way people run. They put this big fat heel on the back of your sneaker, and people started running on the heel instead of running on the ball of the foot. When you land on the ball of your foot, your foot is a natural shock absorber. Right. And what they did was made people run with their heel first, Which with their lifted foot. It's not yeah. good. It's terrible for your knees. It's terrible right. for a lot of things. And people develop all sorts of issues. I wonder if that's that the way. correlation with running long distances and knee problems. Because I'm sure. Yeah, I I used to be a jump roper. I was a professional jump roper when you I you're a professional jump roper. I How was. How much did you get paid? Well, we we got um, we were sponsored by like the American Heart Association. Really? So we had like um, donations and stuff. Ah. But uh, yeah, so I started jumping rope. It was called the International Rope Skipping Organization at that time. That's hilarious. I think, I think it's called like the Universal Universal Rope Skipping Organization now. But I was I would compete. So we'd, we'd go, you know, every year and compete with other teams from around the world. I would travel to other, you know, places, other parts of the U.S. and set up, do demonstrations in schools and set up teams. Anyways, I was really good. And I, I can still jump rope. Like, I could do, wow. if, you, if you have, next, like, next time I see you, like, jump, like, if, if you have a jump rope or if okay. I remember to bring one, like. I'll bring one for you next it, time. Next time you got to do two things. You got to try out the tank. Come here early. We'll set you up with the isolation tank. We'll do a sauna. We should do a podcast we from should the sauna. Do, oh, that would be awesome. We're going to start doing that because we have the sauna here. We're going to do little podcasts. Now, Obviously, how are you going to last the heat, long. Yeah, the heat with the recording equipment and stuff. But we'll see. If it breaks, it I breaks. Just, I just like there's more new interesting stuff on the sauna like that I would love to talk to you about, like new studies coming out. And so next one. Next one. All right. <laughs> we'll schedule it a couple months from now. And then the jump rope. Yeah. yeah. So, so jump rope. but Jumping the, on the balls of your feet. That yes. was the point I was, I was going to say. If you d- jumped on the heels, oh. it was awful it was like so i would imagine it'd be terrible but when you look at a running shoe you think of an average running shoe the average running shoe has a a lifted heel now people are understanding that this is negative and this is bad for you so you you see what are called zero drop shoes like the vibrams yes okay yeah those or minimalist shoes that's what i run in i run in either vibrams i run in those i I have some merrells that i run into and what they're essentially is they have a wide toe box so your your toes splay out and there's almost no padding. There's very little yeah, padding. Yeah, I've tried B-rooms before. It's just enough of a, a hard cover to keep you from getting cut from yeah. like rocks and stuff. So, so the problem for me is I when I tried them out, I was running on hard concrete. Um, it was like I was running around this lake because I lived in Oakland at the time. And um, and so I didn't really like it. Were you running on the heels of your feet no, or the ball of your balls. feet? No, balls. Yeah. yeah. It just but was too much, huh? It was too much because of the concrete. Yeah. So... But I think even that is okay if you build up to you it. You build up, yeah. But you, but you develop your foot strength changes radically. So maybe I'll get some again and and try. You got to go slow though. Because beach be- running is probably a lot easier too. Oh yeah, I run the beach on those. Yeah. When I'm uh, on vacation, I'll run with uh, minimal shoes. But when you are doing it, you have to build up to it because you can get plantar fasciitis. Where you you start really destroying really? the bottom of your feet. Okay. Yeah, very common. So what do you mean, like just don't run as long distance or yeah. something? Take okay. your time. Yeah. They like the Vibrams. Uh, they got in trouble because they were telling people that their shoes can prevent injury, and and strengthen your feet, which they can. But it takes a long time. So what it, what it would happen is people would say, Oh, I'm going to use these shoes. Going to prevent injury. Fuck, I'm injured. Because they would, they your feet are weak. The idea is that your feet in regular shoes are essentially like in a cast. 
This is what your feet are like. You're, you're relying on the structure of the shoe. It's tightening up around your foot. You have a nice fat cushion to the bottom of it, and you're using minimal musculature of your toes and all of the different, you know, feet. You're, you're not articulating everything as individual uh -huh. joints and pushing with all the muscles. And so when you switch from a thick, fat running shoe to like a Vibram's five finger, there's, a, there's definitely a, a, an adaptation curve. And that, you, you have to be careful with it. I, I certainly think because when I did, was doing it, I was running long distances. Like yeah. I just, I didn't ease into it at all either. And I was doing it on concrete. My friend Neil Brennan got plantar fasciitis from running on a treadmill. In Vibrams? With, with Vibrams, yeah. Wow. But he's got, I think I was running on tre treadmills as well too. Buzzy. I'm just kidding. So. Uh, I'd say that to him. Um, but uh, yeah, he just got too crazy with it. He's he's kind of an obsessive person. He he got into it and he's like, oh, this is the thing. I'm I'm gonna do this now. Yeah, I yeah. ran a few miles and he blew himself out like right away. He fucked up his feet. Does that can it. you reverse that? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it takes a while to heal though. It's very painful. I know quite a few people that have gotten plantar fasciitis and you, you know you get out of bed, you can barely walk. I think my mother-in-law had it. Yeah, it's rough. Yeah, it's rough. So uh, I did. Luckily, I've done martial arts my whole life, so my my feet are pretty strong. But I noticed a big difference f between uh, running with minimal minimalistic shoes. I mean, just my feet just feel stronger. They just they feel different. They feel different when I'm mm -hmm. walking around. My arches raised up. I've, I've always had flat feet. My arches have actually gotten higher, and like my just the the overall dexterity of my feet. One place where I really feel it is in yoga. I notice a big difference in yoga. I have mm -hmm. just more foot strength. I'm going to try out the Vibrams again. Yeah. I threw out my other ones, but my feet are, like, bigger now after pregnancy. So <laughs> That's funny. Like, it stretches your feet out? Uh, it did, did mine. Maybe it's like, <laughs> you know what? Maybe it's akin to uh, weightlifting, right? Because you're thinking about it. You have all this extra weight in your body. You're carrying around your feet and your Boy, hips. and Right? Yeah, you definitely have a lot of extra weight. I mean, it, it seems carrying, like yeah. it. Like, if you had I a 40-pound vest on your back and you did a lot of exercises with that 40-pound vest, your bones are going to get more dense, mm. right? Yeah, I I would like to know. I mean, I know I know certainly my feet were bigger during pregnancy because of the swelling and stuff. But right. but I'm four months out and my feet are definitely bigger. Are they longer? Um, are they wider? They're wider. They're wider. They're, they're wider. They're, I bet you have more meat in your foot. Yeah, they're wider. Right? I, I was shocked. I couldn't like this a pair of shoes that I'm supposed to fit didn't fit, and it was I was like, you know, it was too narrow. I bet that totally makes sense. I mean, think about how much weight did you gain? Are you allowed to ask gals that? Um, I so I actually you've gained, lost all the weight, so I've, I'm allowed to ask. You. <laughs> I've, I've I've lost a lot, most of it, but I still, you know, there's there's just a little more to me. But um, my God, was I big? It's crazy. It's amazing that we bounce back. I gained um, probably more. I get they say like 30 pounds. I gained like close to 50. I know a woman to gain 80. But I was eating all healthy foods. I started out very thin. Maybe and that so I was talking to my uh, OBGYN about that and um, he was telling me that really because I didn't like look obese or anything it wasn't it was just I start when you start off with a starting point your body wants you to gain a certain amount of weight sure and so my body wanted me to gain fifty pounds and I had an eight pound ten ounce boy and well just think about fifty pounds on your back for nine months of course your feet are going to get bigger they're going to be stronger. Yeah, it was, you know, there was they an interesting to, right? study showing that VMAX actually improved, VO2 max improves after pregnancy. Sure, makes like, sense. You're like carrying dramatically. around a baby. It's kind of like training in I have a pack or whatever. I, yeah. I have this thing, it's called um, a company called Outdoorsman's. They make a pack that's designed to condition people for backpack hunting. 
uh, when you you go, uh, you carry everything. You carry your entire camp on your back. So you carry your you know sleeping bag um, of jet boil, one of those tanks that you you cook on. You carry all of your equipment. You carry everything. How much weight eat, is All it? your food. I mean, you you could carry as much when you when you're wearing a backpack and you're going in to camp you could carry as much as 70 80 pounds on your back so what they do this company called outdoorsman's they make a pack frame that has a, an olympic plate bolt on the back of it where you slide olympic plates on it and you clamp them down so you have like a like literally an olympic weight on your back you could put a 45 pound plate or a 90 pound plate and you do you hike to condition yourself so that you have the right posture yeah. and you're building the right exactly. muscles and exactly exactly yeah. it's it's one of the best ways like weighted pack exercises is one of the best ways to prepare yourself for that it's really one of the only ways because you're dealing with many many miles of hiking yeah that's kind of yeah. cool because i've i've often like i haven't really ever done any like big camping like that you know i'm i'm always like go for a hike of the day come yeah. back go to the cabin you know it's but rough. it'd be kind of fun to do that like where you hike many miles in and you you know stick up a camp and yeah you know so um but i've thought it's like grueling. how am i going to carry all that stuff it's grueling it's, yeah, yeah. I, I can imagine like there's no way i could do that much but well when some people do it if they're only going to go for a few days they can get it down to as little as 40 pounds you know some people are super minimalist like my friend adam he does it for many stretches at a time and he'll do like 28 days in the bush by himself he, he lives in australia he'll, he's done it in montana too and he um he did it and documented it all on his instagram story but he's so extreme he cuts his toothbrush in half like he only has the he wow. cuts weight in so many different places that the handle of his toothbrush he cuts off. So he's brushing his teeth with like the little you know, the end part of a uh -huh. toothbrush, which I think is just stupid. <laughs> like how much weight are you yeah. saving? Come on, man, it's ridiculous. Put, give yourself a real toothbrush, you psycho. But these people um, really concentrate on, you know, making things as minimal as possible, bringing as little gear as possible, and just getting it all dialed in. You have mm -hmm. to kind of figure out how much water you need, how much food you need. Most of the time they map out, they'll use like um, uh, Google Earth and map out where the natural springs are and try to figure out uh, how much water they have to bring with them and how much they can get from these sources. And so then they have to have either a SteriPen or some sort of filtration system to clean out the, the water to make sure that they don't get, you know. Parasites. Air, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. How, what's the longest... Um Amount of time that you've done like one of these camping. Sort of I've things. never done it where they did it like that, where I carried my camp on my back and I uh, lived out there for. The only time I've ever done it is with a group of guys, and we've camped for a week in Montana. But we brought everything in on canoes, mm. so we had all these supplies. We brought them in on boats. We got out, we staked our tents, and we we had food with us. Just you know, you know. But I know a lot of guys who do it, and they, they don't bring much food. They just try to live off the land. They just try to get successful quick with the hunting and then That's scary. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But I, it's the added challenge of it, you know. But the, weight, but the point being that weighted backpacks yeah. are an, an excellent cardiovascular exercise. Yeah. So it just or makes sense bellies. that being, <laughs> yeah, being pregnant yeah. would make your feet stronger and increase your VO2 max. I did a lot of walking, like four miles a day. You know, oh, and, yeah. and I thought I was doing a great thing, but there's this girl, there's this woman in my spin class and she's like kicking ass and she's about to have this baby like any day and she's there biking away and I'm wow. like, geez. Yeah, some she's people get tiny, crazy though. with it. She's real tiny. Like I, I look back at pictures of me and I'm like, I can't believe I like bounced back from that because it's just like, 
I'm just so enormous. You yeah. know, it's it's crazy. It's just it's incredible. The whole thing is incredible. Do you think you're gonna do it again, or are you one and done? I think I might be one and done. Um, I don't know for sure, but you know, I, it's it's. You got some time to think. You only I got, got four months old. I got a little bit of time to think, right? I mean, like I've got pressure. Like my my half sister and like other people are like, okay, you got to wait a year. You got to get pregnant again. I'm like, Whoa, oh my gosh, you slow down. You don't you don't have to do anything crazy. It's okay right. to have one kid. I kind of I've kind of I'm kind of just so in love with him that I'm like I don't want to share my love, you know. Oh, but, but you know what? Having kids like my kids are two years apart. Uh, the youngest ones, and when they they hang out together, it's just amazing. You watch them hug each Aww. other, and they 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 play games together, and you know there's still, like little sibling rivalries. There's always going to be, but mm-hmm. but there's something magical about having a sibling. You know, I grew up with a sister who's one year younger than me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I have like, a brother who's uh, four years younger than me. Yeah, it's it, I don't know, it's just something to it, but yeah. you know. It's also something to have a one kid and giving them a lot of attention. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, and being able to do other things too, like yeah. science. <laughs> So speaking of science, tell people where um, they can listen to your podcast and contribute to your research because you have you have you were saying you have what is the the, the page where oh, people can yeah there's a, there's a Patreon and also we have a direct subscribership where people can if they want me to continue to um, do the podcast but put out um, you know articles so my podcast is on iTunes it's called Found My Fitness but you can go to my um, website called foundmyfitness.com and there's now episode pages we have where I'm starting to now put a lot of information well, look it's you <laughs> and Found My Fitness on Instagram Episodes, Found uh-huh, My Fitness Instagram, on Twitter on Twitter and, um, and they're all Facebook. the episodes yeah so here's the episodes and if you click on one there's like a summary and a tra- sometimes we're getting transcripts now so I'm going to put a lot more information um, there as well and so yeah people are are, are uh, contributing money whatever they can they can do at one time or like a one five ten dollar a month um, some people do more than that and um, it's it's really cool uh, it really has been a lot of fun and I enjoy it like like it's just I love it. Well, you're awesome at it, and you're you're awesome at this too. I mean, it's ridiculous. You haven't looked at notes once. All this shit is all from the top of your head. For people that are listening to this, she's not reading off of anything. She's just rattling this off. It's very humbling. Thank you. So <laughs> thanks for doing this. And uh, next time we'll do the tank, do the sauna. We'll try to do a podcast. I'm totally going to hold you to that. Okay, let's do it. We'll do it. <laughs> jump we'll do rope. It. You've yes. got to see the jump. I get rope. a jump rope. Okay. We'll do it. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ron Patrick, ladies and gentlemen.